This podcast is brought to you by the Albany Public Library main branch and the generosity of listeners like you. What is a podcast? God, Daddy, these people talk as much as you do. Razib Khan's unsupervised learning. You know that genetics plays a huge role in our health, and more people are using genetic testing to determine risk for diseases like cancer for themselves and their kids than ever before. So I want to tell you about ORCID. It's the only company that does whole genome testing for embryos, testing before your child is born. If you're doing IVF, this is a clear choice now because now you can reduce risk for thousands of single gene disorders, including heritable forms of autism, pediatric cancers, and birth defects. Check them out at orchidhealth.com. Hey guys, this is Razib with the Unsupervised Learning Podcast, and I'm here with my friend Rob Henderson. I think this is his second appearance on the Unsupervised Learning Podcast. Uh, he, I actually recorded the podcast uh, that I uh, posted to this, uh, well, you know, to this show, whatever you want to call it, uh, in 2020. I think I waited six months, and earlier I had recorded a podcast with him from another one of my podcasts, the Brown Pundits podcast. So, um, you know, I've done several podcasts with Rob, and I do know Rob from real life. Um, you know, we were just talking before we, uh, you know, because we do talk before I get on these podcasts. I, I hope you guys are not scandalized by that. Um, you know, we talked about science and many other intellectual things, right, Rob? But, uh, you know, we talked about the fact that we uh, we met at the, um, you know, sexual revolution uh, debate in LA uh, in the fall. And so we see each other every now and then. And sometimes, you know, he's not lame and he comes to Austin. Uh, now, uh, normally Rob lives in Cambridge, England. Um, you know, someday he will come back to civilization. Uh, but it is Dr. Rob Henderson now. Um, he is a PhD in psychology. Uh, and um, as you guys know, if you're listening to this right now, because uh, the show notes have like a big picture of the book. Uh, he wrote a book called Troubled, a memoir of foster care, family, and social class. Um, I had the privilege of reading early drafts of this. Uh, uh, it's great. Um, I do not normally read memoirs, but I did. Um, there's some stuff in there that's very interesting for people that are interested in behavior genetics, uh, developmental psychology, uh, and whatnot. So um, it's not like a simple introspective introspective reflection, I think, um, of you know growing up middle class or something boring like that. Um, I don't know. It's not like if, if if you're into the corrections or you know something about the Midwest and psychological drama. Yeah, there's some psychological drama in there, but like you know, this is growing up in um, was it Red Bluff? Red Bluff, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I, I know. You know, I'm, I I lived in NorCal. I know Red Bluff. Those of you who know Red Bluff, kind of like working class. You know, um, kind of a tough town, um, being adopted and all that, um, being in foster care, and um, you know, there's a there's a saying Yale Yale or jail. And, I, and I've told Rob this before, like literally like he is Yale or jail. Yale or jail is actually not applicable to very many people, but it was applicable to him. And, and we'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, but first, since the last time I talked to you, Rob, um, you've become a person of color, um, underrepresented minority, uh, a BIPOC. Um, how does that feel? Like, like, Talk about what happened there. Well, I, I I tweeted this. I borrowed a lie that that uh, you told me, uh, sort of behind the scenes. You said uh, you what is it? You you went to bed white adjacent and you woke up an underrepresented minority. <laughs> I love That's that true. line. Um, and yeah, it's 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 right because so I didn't know. I didn't know my my father uh, growing up. I knew my mom. Um, 
And, you know, I knew my mother was from Seoul, South Korea. I was born in L.A., uh, but I never met my father. And according to these documents that I later um, uh, read from my social workers who were responsible for my case when I was in foster care, my birth mother didn't know who my father was either. And so I grew up and kind of just assumed, oh, you know, he's probably he was probably not Korean because I don't look fully uh, Korean. I don't look fully Asian. He could have been white, maybe something else Hispanic. I, I, but I, I was just never especially curious. But then recently I took a, a 23andMe DNA test, genetics test. And um, yeah, so I got the results and I was a bit uh, perplexed by them at first. You know, I'm, I'm not a geneticist. I'm not super well versed in it. And so it came out, you know, so so it was like 50% Korean. And then it was like 25% sort of like North American, but then it was sort of categorized as Asian. And I didn't really understand that. And then 25% from Spain. And so I sent them to you and I'm like, okay, well, so like it basically it suggests my father was half Spanish and then like half sort of this Asian North American thing or whatever. And so I sent it to you and I asked, does this like, what does this mean? Does this mean my dad was Hispanic? And you were like, yeah, it does. You know, you're, you're, you're Latinx now. You're Latinx. <laughs> yeah, let me uh, just, I, I'm actually, I pulled up your, your results. So let me just like uh, read it out uh, for the listener. So it says you're 71% East Asian and an indigenous American. And of that, mm-hmm. uh, about 50% is Japanese um, and uh, well, Korean, right? He, yeah. Korea. Uh, sorry. Jap- Oops. That was an error. Uh, do not edit that out. Uh, editor. Uh, I think that's, that's a funny error. What well, says Japanese and Korean. And then it says Korean when you drill yeah. down. Um, uh, and also it's the uh, Geo Lanam Do region. Is that so? Okay. Uh, um, yeah, I, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. And then it says you're about 20% indigenous American and then the remainder is European, um, and it says you are – like the vast majority of that is Southern European, Spanish, and Portuguese. It says yeah. you're 0.3% Ashkenazi Jewish. Uh, for a <laughs> Latinx person, I, I, I know what that means. What that means is that you're, uh, you're about 0.6%. You're about half percent uh, Sephardic Jewish uh, because mm-hmm. on the 23andMe calculator – they don't have Sephardic samples, and I don't really want to get into it. Maybe someday I'll do a podcast about Sephardic Jews and what they mean genetically. There's a paper that's going to come out next year. Uh, well, actually, maybe middle of this year, but in any case, about Sephardic Jews, and I'm not going to give away the results, but um, so there's going to be more known about them soon. But Sephardic Jews, uh, they don't come out as, as uh, Jewish. They come out as half, half Ashkenazi because Ashkenazi descend from them in part and half Iberian. And so, you know, you get 0.3% Iberian. That's going to be allocated to your Iberian ancestry and 0.3% Ashkenazi Jewish, the other half. Uh, And so this is common among Latinx people, among people from Latin America, because there was a disproportionate migration of Sephardic Jews into the New World, uh, especially the northern reaches and the edges of New Spain, also a few pockets in the highlands of Ecuador, uh, because they were escaping the Inquisition. So so that's the backstory there. Um, So the interesting thing here is like – you know, talking to you, you know, previous conversations, you were always Eurasian uh, in just, you know, you, you don't look, I mean, you look within the range of people that are half white, half Korean. That's what I'm going to say. Yeah. Um, yeah, you yeah. know, I think that's right. Like people, you know, people sometimes say there's like a resemblance to like, you know, on certain days and certain angles anyway, like Henry Golding or something like that, who I think is half British, half Chinese Malaysian, like that kind of just. I, like, don't know, I, I, I think his mom is his mom is like indigenous. Uh, she's she's um Orang Asli or you know oh is that right okay yeah 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 yeah, yeah. his yeah, father so I, is I, I, British yeah yes yeah I, so he uh because he did some um Iban I think it was Iban or Dayak 
um, ritual from his from his mom's tribe. Yeah, right, 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 right. I yeah, 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 yeah. So he's not he's not technically. I mean, he might be part Chinese, but I'm saying his cultural identity is is wrong, Asli yeah. or whatever. Um, which yeah. like those of you in Malaysia will know what that means or Southeast Asia. Uh, so um, it's just like indigenous people before the Malay. You know, you know what I'm saying. Um, just like yeah, the. Yeah. All the people you see on National Geographic documentaries back in the day, okay? That's the way, that's the easiest way I'm going to explain that. I don't want to get into the terminology and what it means. Um, but yeah, um, you look you look pretty Eurasian, but you know this is pretty much incontrovertible f- proof that your dad, yeah, probably. I mean, we're probably assuming Mexican, knowing in the United mm-hmm. States, we could probably you know, look Los closer. Angeles too, like you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Almost yeah. all probability, all probability Mexican. Um, we could, we could, pro- we could actually just figure it out by looking at what the indigenous American is. It would probably match Mesoamerican. Uh, there's a new test, um, whatever. I mean, I'll just say it cause I think they'll be out of, out of, um, out of stealth by Galatea Bio, uh, Carlos Bustamante, uh, formerly Stanford, now University of Miami geneticist. They, um, are actually geared a lot towards Latin Americans and they have a lot of native American samples from Latin America. So that test is actually very good at just figuring out what part of Latin America you're from because yeah, the Iberian proportion that can't differentiate because there's like a skew towards Basque and people from Extremadura and Andalusia in the Americas, but that's all over the place. But the indigenous ancestry in Mexico tends to be, you know, indigenous Mexican, like Nahuatl, you know, Zapotec, that sort of thing. In Peru, it tends to be, you know, Quechua's, you know, like, you know, post Inca, whatever. And so you can actually use that to figure out what part of Latin America you're from if you don't know, which look, if you're from Colombia, you should know you're from Colombia. But you know, there are people who are adopted and maybe it's yeah. something they just were never told or whatever. With you it's a, a particular case because you don't know who your biological father is. So uh, let me ask you a personal question, but I'm just gonna ask like, did you get any relative matches on your dad's side? Uh I think there were some like second, third cousin kind of things going on. And yeah, I mean sort of clustered in in California or like the Southwest. Um, which, you know, to me that that makes that makes sense. Um and yeah, yeah. So so sort of second and third cousins. I know that on my my mom's side, um, again, this is uh from from social worker documents. Uh she had two other sons before me, so I'm at least the third. I mean, I don't know how many other kids she had, but there were two older uh, brothers that I had that I'd never met, uh, different fathers, uh, on my mom's side. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know their background. I've never met them. I've actually, you know, the, I've never met any of my, uh, my, my birth family. I mean, sort of since I was put into the foster system, I, I have these, these sort of memories of my mom and nothing of my, my father and yeah, nothing, nothing of my, my brothers either. But yeah, I mean, I have seen these sort of, I get these notifications from 23 and me like, Oh, we have a genetic match or something like that. I, um, I saw this comment. I posted this on Twitter too. I saw this comment on on a YouTube uh, interview that I did. Someone said that you know your your dad looks you, you you look like Guillermo del Toro. That's probably your dad. And I was like, you know, I haven't seen Guillermo del Toro in a movie in a few years. But I looked him up. I'm like, oh, I could kind of see it. He's kind of had like you know he has like light skin. He's um he has the kind of um his eyes. You know, they look a little bit squinty. They could be like a little bit Asian. I'm like, okay, I could kind of I could kind of see that. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so like, yeah, that's that's possible. That's poss- oh no, no, no. I'm sorry, not Guillermo del Toro, Benicio del Toro, Benicio del Toro is something. Whoa, that's totally different, bro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, Wait, I don't want to. I don't want to. Yeah, yeah. We're gonna get. Yeah, we're gonna get people angry Guillermo, in the comments. Uh, Benicio, Benicio del Toro. Who I think. What, what movie is he? I can't even like. I've seen. I know I've seen him in movies, but yeah, Benicio del Toro. Who's uh? What movie has he been yeah. in? Yeah, uh, I think he's been anyway. in one of the. Yeah. Was he in one of the crashes? I think he was in one. Yeah, one of the and, and like. 
Yeah, yeah. But he has that that sort of, you know, he has like kind of wavy hair. Yeah. He has like squinty eyes. I'm like, oh, you know, like that could be, you know, that's 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 possible. He was in Sin City. He was in L.A., uh, right? He was in L.A. I think he would have been like yeah, 22 yeah. or something when I was born. So <laughs> it's not it's not impossible. Yeah. Yeah. OK. He went to University of you know. California, San Diego. Okay. Anyway, I don't want to. I don't want to get any comments from from lawyer from lawyers. No, but um. So I guess like you know you are you gonna move back to America? I mean, we were talking about this before, and I I always like you know try to follow up with you. Are you gonna move back to the USA? Are you gonna go to Asia? Are you gonna go stay and stay in England? I mean, England is like, dude. England is like it's like effing collapsing, man. I mean, since the first time I talked to you, it's it's getting worse and worse, bro. It's what people say. I don't know. I mean, personally, I feel pretty kind of protected. Yeah, but aren't you in, aren't you in Cambridgeshire? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sort of yeah, like if, from a lot of yeah, it. like if 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 the um you know if if Strider and uh, the men of the north, you know, the Dunedain, we're not we're not protecting um the edges of your shire. Like you would see the real England, bro. I mean, you I live mean, in a little I, bubble. I, the thing is, like, I'm in London a lot too. I mean, I, I go to London every couple of weeks at least. No, it's, London's you know, not the real London, not London, not the real England again. It's the real England. What's I mean, the, I go, mean, go, I'm, in, you know, I'm in the sort of cosmopolitan bubbles. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like, go, go into the deep Midlands, bro. Go into the north, I mean, right? Well, I mean, are you gonna like? You know, I mean, you could say that about America, right? Like Red Bluff is Red Bluff. You know, Red Bluff is kind of shitty, but like, are people gonna go there instead of whatever? Like, you know, it's what's what's the real America? I mean, well, I would I would say I would go to a cosmopolitan bubble too. Well, I mean, there's some nice rural parts of America, though. You know, you go to there are rural parts of California that are nice. You go to the San Juanes Valley. You go to Sonoma. You know, like the California examples in in Texas. Here, you go to the Hill Country. You go to Fredericksburg. Um, there are some. I mean, yeah. America does have like it has a lot of variants. Uh, what yeah. I will say though is, you know, working like hiring people. Everybody knows, like for example, if you're a software guy, a girl, or person, um, you're gonna make about seventy five percent more in the U.S. Like aside from banking and finance type stuff, just basically banking and finance. I think there is no parity in wages anywhere in England for whatever reason. Um, if you're a doctor, as you guys know, the NHS doesn't pay crap. So you have to have all these, all these like non, non non-British people come in and work for you guys. Um, all of these professions pay crap. Oh my, I can't, I can't, I can't even get into what the thing, the things that I've heard from friends, um, in terms of like professors. Wait, so I mean, I'm just going to say it. Like I got a buddy, he got a group leader, um, I mean, he subscribes to my Substack, so I know he's going to listen to this. But, bro, I did not identify you. I just gendered you. Um, so he got a, a group leader offer, uh, and it was like uh, 60,000 pounds. Right. Okay. Yeah. And that's like a big – that's that's like um, tenure track assistant professor, okay? Yeah. Yeah. It's just like – that's nothing, man. Well, you know, in the not, U.S. That doesn't even – I mean, for a starting salary, tenure track assistant professor, 60000 That's not too bad. But I'm no, 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 no. This is this is, yeah. this is at an, an institution that's – I mean, look, it's at one of two institutions that count. Okay, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes – yeah, so so I know like like full – you know, like full professors at Oxbridge, you know, you'll make, you'll make roughly half or slightly less than half of what you would make at like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, you know, like uh, roughly speak. You know, you, you might get like two, two, 200 to 250 – 
at at one of the elite Ivy League institutions, whereas at Oxbridge, you might get like 100,000 pounds a year, 120,000 pounds a year, something like that. Like it's, you know, roughly half, maybe a little bit more than half. Um, and the cost of living is not not that much different depending on where you live. So yeah, that's the issue. Really, um, if, you really, do, if you do, yeah, if you do, if you do purchase it, I mean, purchasing power parity, it's like crazy. Um, mm. In terms of the UK, and it's and it's, it's really diverged since 2008 when the you know the world financial uh, bubble um, really uh, allowed the UK to like kind of like inflate up because mm-hmm. it's so finance driven. You know what I'm saying? So the UK did in the 2000s leading up to 2008, it wasn't actually that bad um, of a difference. In fact, like I think they matched the US um, in, uh, in in that period, but. Now um, it's a very stagnant country, but you know I wasn't gonna I wasn't talking about the um, uh, uh, the UK versus the US. I, I wanted to ask you about this yeah. whole BIPOC um, Latinx thing. Like, you obviously didn't grow up that way, and just just you know we're gonna get into your memoir. Uh, your adoptive mom is racially Korean as well, right? Uh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So the woman who yeah. adopted me later, after I was in foster care, she is yeah she's Korean, also from Seoul. And she herself was adopted. Uh, so yeah. there was like, there's this sort of string of adoptions in my, whatever, in my, my, my history, but my, my adoptive mother, even though she's ethnically Korean and, you know, Asian presenting woman, her adoptive parents, so she was adopted when she was three years old by a white mm-hmm. American family, this working class family uh, in Oregon. And so she, um, you know, despite, you Wait, know, being- where in Oregon, where in Oregon does she grow up? I don't actually. I'm embarrassed to say this, but I don't actually. Oh, I've asked. I've asked you this multiple yeah. times. Yeah, yeah I, but I think I, I know. I think I know where it is. I think yeah. I learned more about my adoptive mother through the process of writing this memoir. That, you know, because people aren't aren't curious that, about their parents. You know, like very few. You know, like well, you know, they they don't know that. Like asking that many questions to their parents about their history and their past and stuff, and then I'm like, oh, I should learn a little bit. But I didn't actually learn exactly the town she grew up. But I will say that it was, you know, from what I gather from the story she's told me, like extremely rural, extremely poor, like. Probably not that different from Red Bluff, or maybe some of the places that because some of the things that you've told me. Yeah, I thought I, I thought I thought it, I thought it was like around Klamath Falls, if I remember. I think it was somewhere like you know on that's the east side right. of the Cascades or the south. Yeah, yeah, that sounds yeah. familiar. Yeah. So yeah, yeah around yeah. that area, and that was in like you know the late sixties, the early seventies, and yeah, my my grandparents were not like college educated or anything. My my grandfather was like a part time mechanic, and my grandmother was blind, and so she helped like uh, you know like sort of assist and clean and did some sort of side jobs. But yeah, they sort of you know, work, work, work things out financially, but they were sort of on the margins, sort of working class. Um, and, and so, yeah, that was, uh, yeah. So that's my, my, my adoptive mom's side. Okay. Well, okay. So that's your background, but, um, now you are, okay. So this is the issue that, 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 you know, cause America is kind of like an apartheid society right now. Um, mm-hmm. your racial identity matters a lot. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, so more and more so, yeah. That's, that's well, and, you, you know, know I, I, and I didn't even, I didn't even talk about it. I didn't talk, you know, my, my college applications, all that. I was like, man, if I had known, I might have. That's what I'm trying to say. That's what I'm trying to say. So you didn't grow up. You have no Latinx culture. You know, mm-hmm. you were not raised by a Latinx person. You were raised by a person who's basically white, working to lower class, but culturally, but racially Asian. You yourself are mixed. You find out that you're part Mexican, basically. Okay, you have children, they're going to be part Mexican. So are they going to, I mean, hopefully this is not going to be an issue in the future. But the point here is, okay, like you find out you're part Mexican, what, you were 30? Mm, yeah, 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 31, okay, I well, think. Yeah, so, so what does that even mean? So I know people who found out, so I knew a guy in grad school who found out he was 5% black uh, and 5% Native American. He knew the Native American part. Mm. Um, his his grand 
I think it was his grandfather was like, yeah, I'm part Native American, one of my grandparents, whatever. So he knew like one of his grandparents was like, what? That would be like, you know, 30, like just like multiply to 2.5, whatever was noticeable. But apparently his grandparent had kind of lied to him or, or like there was a lie in the family and they like ignored the black part because obviously that's more taboo than Native American. So he didn't know growing up that he was part black. And so he finds out he's part black. I think he's like 28, 29. And he goes up to his PhD because he's like in his like, I think he was in his third or fourth year coming up for some fellowships. And we had a mutual acquaintance um, whose grandmother was half black. Hmm. Yeah. So he was one for, so he was an eighth black, something like that. Uh, his grandmother was half black. Anyway, uh, this guy got a, a fellowship for um, black, you know, it was like targeted at like black students. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you're, like, you know, black, whatever. You know. And so, like, my my buddy was like, well, he wasn't my buddy. He was my friend. He was like, you know, he was in the lab of a really close friend. So I knew the whole story. And he was like, wait a second. So I'm not that much different than, I'm going to call him Mike. It was, it was a generic name. I'm not that different than Mike. And the PhD advisor was like, oh, well, but the issue was like, he knew from when he was little. And you only found out now. And so I we can't say that you have experienced being black. But all of us were also like, wait, but neither of them look black. I mean, you know what? <laughs> you know what I'm trying to say? It's just the whole thing was like the whole thing was ridiculous, but they were really looking for people who was black who were black and and you know, this guy like got some Native American stuff. So like I was like, you should just like you know, just stop while you're ahead, or you know what I'm saying? Because, yeah, like, yeah, you also do not look Native American. You do not look Native American, bro. I mean, like, I know you weren't raised on the res. You know, yes, your grandfather was raised on the res or something. Um, yeah. And this is actually a common This is a common thing. A lot of people who are part Native American find out they're part Native American, also find out they're part black because, you know, there were slaves on the reservation. And also, if you have any black ancestry in the United States, uh, until very recently, you hid it. And so people that were part Native American, part black, or part black and mostly white, they would say they were Native American. They would fess to that. Um, that would, like, explain maybe why they're a little darker. Right. You know, there are some weird cases of people who were, like, you know, like guys who would always shave their head really close so you couldn't see what their hair was like, um, that sort of thing. And so – but, like, now this is all coming out in a lot of families through genetic testing. And so in your case, um, you know, your dad's background obviously coming out through genetic testing – she was not your dad, not your biological dad, had no shaping influence on you. You actually grew up um, – like obviously there's some class issues that we'll get into and you suffered like real deprivation that a lot of people would never have – like you know, just some of the stuff was like pretty pretty tough, man. But, um, but the racial part, you weren't like, oh, I'm Mexican and you know what I'm saying? It's like <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're an yeah. Asian kid and that's know. like – I didn't even know. Like you know, I didn't yeah, – uh, yeah. I did. I just had no. Yeah, and then, but I think that's that's interesting. What you mentioned about your friend about like you know we're looking for people who have a connection with it, and I, like I didn't have a connection with it. I didn't identify with it because I only just you know found out. But I did grow up in L.A. I grew up in California in Red Bluff later, and you know both of those towns. There's a very large uh, Hispanic population. I think like. You know, probably around half of my foster siblings were uh, Mexican or Hispanic and then in, in, in Red Bluff, at least at the school. So, you know, overall, it's a majority white town, but younger people, you know, because of immigration and everything and differential what fertility rates. And, you know, there, there was like I would say my high school was probably like 30 to 40 percent Hispanic. And so I grew up around a lot of these people. A lot of them were my close friends. And so I like I had a connection with it, <laughs> but like it would have felt fraudulent to me. Uh, even, even now it, it almost feels fraudulent to say that I'm half, like when I say it out loud, it just sounds so bizarre because I didn't, you know, I just never identified with it. Um, 
But but yeah, it's just funny how how much it matters to people and how, you know, like this is something that I said to my girlfriend recently, you know, because up until, you know, up until whatever, like she's Asian and I thought, you know, I'm like half Asian. I don't know what else, you know, and I thought like, OK, well, if, if our kids apply, you know, they're, <laughs> you know, they're going to be penalized. But then I get these DNA results and I'm like, oh, wait, you know, maybe our kids have, a, you know, the uh, the recent sort of Supreme Court rulings notwithstanding. But like, yeah, the uh, it's just funny how like like these these DNA results and all this stuff, like how much race is coming to matter more and more in everyday life and how, you know, people will, will lie about it. And I mean, I had a, a Hispanic friend at Yale bring this up to me. He's a, he's from a border town in Texas. He's like, you know, like obviously, you know, Hispanic guy. And, you know, he was like, you know, something like half of the people he met at the, the, there's like a Latino or whatever Hispanic cultural center on campus and he was like, so many of the people there, like, they definitely don't look Hispanic. And I know, like, Hispanics can look different, but, like, almost all of them are, like, white. <laughs> or, like, a lot of them are basically white people who, like, you know, sort of co-opt the identity or sort of stretch family relations. And, you know, it's they don't look like the Hispanics that I knew growing up in the border town in Texas. They, they didn't look like the ones that I knew in California. And uh, it's just, you know, people are trying to, like, dig through their family history or their tree or family lore uh, in order to find some connection to get that leg up. But the, you know, if you have a, a backstory like mine, the sort of class issues that I had, or some of the the white people that I grew up with that they had, you know, that doesn't really count. It's very strange to me that uh, class often yeah. goes so so overlooked with uh, discussions around pl- privilege and, and access and inclusion and all this stuff around elite universities. Yeah, just a couple of quick notes on that. Um, people who listen to me will well, probably know some of these, but I got a buddy in town. Um, he's, uh, I'm going to say his surname. Let's just say Gomez. Uh, but he's a tall, blonde, white guy. And so people are like, you know, why is your last name Gomez? And he's like, well, my paternal grandfather was Mexican. Hmm. And, uh, but anyway, he's in tech and he gets, um, you know, he gets, I mean, he gets like stuff that's aimed at Latinx people. Okay. He knows it's fake, but what's he supposed to do? They're looking for them. And his last name is Gomez. Like, he happens to be a tall, blonde dude. But still, when you look at the, the list of recipients or the funder, the people funded, his last name is Gomez. Okay? So this is why, um, you know, I don't know, for all the libs out there, just be candid. This is why, like, this stuff, like, drives me crazy. Because there's so much fake stuff uh, that's going on um, when there's, like, legit, in, you know, inequality in this country. And, hey, I'm not a poor person, so I'm not going to, you know, mm-hmm. cry about it. Doesn't affect me, really. Not going to lie. But, like, if you really care about this stuff, like, what's up going on here? Second thing is, um, I know for a fact, um, I think I mentioned this before, I know for a fact that Yale Law School is investigating Native American applicants. Mm. Well, they should. And also, they do investigate the backgrounds. They check uh, of the Latinx, of the Latin American Latino applicants to make sure that they're not all, they're not all, like, you know, Castilian, you know what I'm saying? Because it starts to look bad because there have been some optical issues where you take the photographs of like the Latin student union and every single person is white. So um, they are actually – but this is South African style stuff. You know what I'm saying? Where like they're doing phenotypic checks. um, They're making sure you're brown enough. You know, um, this skin color chart. (laughs) Yeah, they're starting to get starting to get a little weird here. But, you know, that's the America we live in. And, uh, you know, it didn't um, I mean, it's it's the America you live in. Uh, It's the way it's a little bit your experience. But um, back to your experience. So the memoir, uh, you know, troubled memoir, foster care, family and social class. Um, I don't know. Give a um, 
I'm gonna say like I'm gonna say it this way. Give a quick chat GPT uh biography of of Rob Henderson, a really quick one for the for the listener out there so they can get a sense of who you are. Uh yeah, yeah. So so I was I was born into poverty in Los Angeles. I my you know, like I, I mentioned I never I never met my father. My birth mother became addicted to drugs. We lived in cars, we were homeless, we, you know, eventually ended up in a slum apartment in LA and my mother um, was, you know, neglectful and not in a good state to be a parent. And so neighbors would hear me crying in the apartment uh, within the apartment complex and some police showed up and I sort of open uh, chapter one, sort of describing the story, you know, these flashbulb memories I have of being taken into custody uh, or my mother was taken into custody. I was taken into the foster care system. Um, never saw her again after that, after she was arrested. Um, she was subsequently deported back to South Korea. I don't know. She was on some kind of visa or something. I don't know what the immigration situation with her was. Um, her father was, so my grandfather, uh, was a former police detective in Seoul. And he had grown somewhat wealthy starting a fertilizer company, uh, sent her to the States to study. And then she just kind of got into drugs and into different relationships with different men and was just uh, sort of her life kind of spiraled out of control. And my, so my experience, you know, I, I went into the foster care system, spent the next five years or so in and out of seven different foster homes, really difficult experiences. Um, those were sort of the formative experiences of my early childhood. And I describe those in, in, in detail uh, in the first chapter of my book. And yeah, then I was adopted, moved to Northern California with my adoptive family in Red Bluff and then, you know, and, and, and this is sort of where, you know, so it's, it's a book about foster care, as I mentioned, but it's also this memory, of, or this memoir of sort of family and social class, too, because I was adopted at, at, a, at an unusual time where I got to witness sort of firsthand, you know, what, what, what Robert Putnam has documented or what Charles Murray has documented, this sort of coming apart or this sort of um, class disparities in family structure where this working class family that had adopted me, they were married, they were intact, they had a young daughter who was who became my adoptive sister, we were, we're all very close, but then they divorced and I sort of witnessed the squalor and the, the instability of all of the people around me too. my close friends. I, I talk about their lives too, about, you know, I had five close friends growing up uh, in Red Bluff. Two were raised by single mothers. One was raised by a single dad. One was raised by his grandmother because his mom was addicted to drugs and his dad was in prison. And, you know, this was um, this was just a sort of everyday reality of working class people who, you know, were not college educated, who weren't even, you know, I, I make this point in the book about how it's not necessarily just economic or material deprivation. There was a bit of that, but, you know, no one I knew, like, grew up hungry. You know, I knew some people on food stamps, and I knew some people on state benefits and things like that. But it wasn't as if, you know, people were uh, uh, in danger of being um, uh, uh, unhoused or something like that. It was just, um, you know, just sort of people making bad decisions every day and kids sort of growing up in that kind of squalor and chaos and making bad decisions for themselves. Um, I describe, you know, a sort of segment of society that a lot of educated readers may not be familiar with of what a high school looks like when none of the students feel like they're ever going to go to college and what their lives look like after that. Um, and then so, so from there, um, you know, I was raised by a single mom, my adoptive parents divorced, my mom fell in love with a woman, there was a lot of sort of family drama there, which we can get into if you want. And then, you know, I got like part time jobs, I smoked a lot of weed, I drank a lot, I got into a lot of trouble as a kid. Um, and then out of a sort of moment of desperation and not, you know, not a particularly uh, uh, carefully 
um, sort of thought out decision, I joined the military when I was 17. And that was probably, you know, the most uh, important decision of my sort of whatever young, young life, young adult life, because it immediately got me out of that environment and into a place where there were sort of highly rigid, structured order and rules and discipline and all of those things. And one of the implicit kind of arguments, I think that kind of comes through in the book is that, you know, there, there's a, you know, there is a huge benefit in discipline in limits in having some structure in your life, uh, having expectations. And that was really important for me, informative for me. And yeah, from there, you know, there were some sort of missteps and setbacks, but ultimately that led to my, my sort of trajectory into, to Yale into Cambridge and sort of getting my life together. But it took a while. I mean, it wasn't, um, it was by no means easy. It was, you know, there were, there were sort of um, setbacks that occurred. There were some, some self self doubts. There were some bad habits and a lot of, you know, just a lot of things that I had to overcome even after, even after I, I had enlisted. Um, but that's the sort of short story of it. And so, yeah, I, I document in detail my, my observations and recollections of the sort of classes that I had grown up in. And then the classes that I saw later, sort of upper and upper middle class at Yale, uh, and, and, and a bit at Cambridge as, as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, and I'll get into some of the stories uh, that struck me. Uh, just, uh, you know, I was telling you, you know, I don't really like writing personal things. I could never write something like this. Uh, so, uh, listeners, you're never going to get a memoir out of me. Uh, it's like, <laughs> I, I don't even know, man. Uh, I don't even know why anyone would want to like, first of all, I did, I, I haven't had some of the, I mean, I've had funny stories, but not interesting stories. That's what I'm going to say. Uh, but I am going to situate myself really quick, quickly. Cause I do know what red bluff is like. Um, I, you know, I've been to Red Bluff. I lived in Northern California. I lived in Southern Oregon. I went to college with people who actually grew up in Red Bluff. Um, one of my uh, friends um, in college, and I'm going to give his real name just to, because he's going to give a flavor of the type of person he is. His name was Dusty. Okay. And he was from Red Bluff. And uh, Dusty um, was, uh, I could recognize Dusty in some of the stuff you wrote uh, in the book. Uh, just, you know, working class guy, single mom. I mean, he graduated college. He's doing okay. I think he does like insurance or something. He went back and got a business degree after his initial degree. But anyway, um, so I know I know a little bit about Red Bluff. I grew up in Eastern Oregon, uh, as some people know, in Northeast Oregon, uh, where I grew up is somewhat different than what Rob is saying because, you know, especially in California, I would say, but in general across the country, um, when someone says they're from Boston, for example, um, I often say, well, where, where are you really from? Because that will give you a sense of who they are. Like if they're from Brookline or Newton, they're a really f- different person than if they're from uh, Dorchester. Okay, And those people from Boston will know what I mean by that. Or um, if they say if they're from the Bay Area and they're from Sausalito, that is quite different than if they say they're from Marin City. Okay, mm. And those people from the Bay Area will know exactly what I mean by that. I did not grow up in a region like that. Um, Northeast Oregon, I grew up in a – when I grew up, the county had 25,000 people, very lightly populated. It had a couple of towns. Um, where I grew up, La Grande was a city of 12,500. It had a college, which is now officially a university because whatever. My dad worked at the college, professor, and the town basically had um, just a – perfect um not like racial representation but a class representation of america you know there were poor people working class people but also there were doctors and dentists and a lot of middle class people people that worked in the university etc cetera, etc cetera. i actually looked up the demographics of my high school uh, many many years ago probably has changed um maybe the nation has changed but 
it's it's demographics, like it's test scores and everything like that were the exact median of the USA. And I think that's reflective of where I grew up in terms of not seeing some of these class divisions that you're talking about, uh, Rob. Although, you know, as an adult, I definitely see them, um, you know, just living in the Bay Area, living in California and living in Austin. Um, I definitely do live in a bubble in a lot of ways uh, compared to when I was a kid. But when I was a kid, I did see some of the people that you are talking about um, and how they lived life differently. As I got older, the closer you come to graduation, obviously you kind of narrow your pool of people you interact with. And, you know, I probably by my senior year, I was interacting mostly with pre-collegiate people, a lot of Mormons, Latter-day Saints, because they lived kind of tend to live a clean life and a uh, sober life. And uh, I was pretty straight edge then. I'm still relatively straight edge, I would say. Um, so, you know, it was, it was a good, good culture fit. So it was just interesting reading um, what what you wrote and your experience, because, you know, I grew up in a rural area as well, but it was a it was a different type of rural area. Um, it wasn't as polarized um, as I have seen in California, where basically um, in California, the Bay Area, L.A., um, to lesser extent, Sacramento, but really it's the Bay Area and L.A. are just sucking up all of the human capital. Yeah, from like from the whole Central Valley, and so the people that remain in the Central Valley, the Southern Central Valley in particular, there's a lot of you know farm workers, laborers, um, you know Cesar Chavez type people that were organized. You know, those are the type of people Cesar's talking. You know, a lot of them are are immigrants from Mexico or even further south in Latin America, but mostly Mexico. They don't speak English. Their children, you know, maybe go to you know the smart ones go to Cal State, you know, in Fresno or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so that's like a different life there and then you have other people um you know where it's like you know they go into the uc system uh and you know aside from uc merced which is the newest lowest ranked one everything is on the coast and so it pulls all the human capital out of these interior cities and it leaves them kind of empty and most people don't know about interior california in this country when they think of california they think of la and think of san francisco they don't think of eureka they don't think of the other california quote unquote redding they don't Mm -hmm. think of the state of person in the north Uh, red bluff is just a stop on i-5 for most people um, if they stop actually it's not on i-5 it's the other one yeah yeah Yeah, yeah. it's on the other one well Mm-hmm. I mean, when you say most people, I mean, most most sort of educated people, right? Like people who, uh, you know, listen, listen to podcasts like this and read stuff like yeah. that I write or that you write. But, you know, there are a lot of people there. Um, but like you said, it's sort of not the people that create culture and the people who have microphones and people who have cultural influence. I mean, yeah, I mean, each time I visit Red Bluff, I mean, I visit, you know, I visit probably every other year now. Um, and yeah, each time it looks sort of a little bit worse. Um and yeah, you're right. I mean, everyone that I knew who had any sort of aptitude or talent or ambition, I mean, they got out of there as soon as they could. I got out of there, you know, just anyone who 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 wants to make money or, or do something interesting or exciting. I mean, why would you stay there? And so it looks, yeah, it's that's just how, how it is now. And, uh, and so there is this sort of the cycle of, you know, these places become sort of increasingly, I mean, I don't know if poor is the right word, but just a, a bit more sort of rundown, dismal, depressing, um, the people who, who remain behind are just, uh, sort of less switched on and less interested, less, whatever, like all, all of the things that, that predict success are just less, less commonly found there. And I mean, even, yeah, even compared to when I, I mean, it's funny, like I talked to 
I talked to this guy who graduated from Red Bluff High School in 1955. This was a couple of years ago. He read he read something I had written, and we 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 had a Zoom call. This was I think during lockdown still, and so he I mean he was like you know in his late 80s or something, and he was like yeah when I was in Red Bluff it was like just a charming little town you know like the worst thing you would see is like maybe kids in the in the school parking lot smoking cigarettes or something, but you know generally you know people were nice and friendly, and it was sort of a vivacious and 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 vibrant downtown area and so on. And then I sort of described what I saw. And then he was like, yeah, I hear it's getting worse. And it's just, you know, that's sort of the the cycle of things of as the university systems opened up and allowed more and more people to, to get in on merit and on test scores as ease of geographic mobility and everything else. I mean, this is this is happening sort of all across the country and all over the world uh, as well, that, you know, people are sort of being reshuffled and elite institutions kind of strip mine talented people out of their communities. And it's a it's a I think it's like sort of an impossible problem, because I'm never going to go back to Red Bluff. I mean, I understand the problem. I see that what it's doing. And I see sort of broadly how this can sort of increase polarization and sort of give rise to, you know, politics of resentment and anger and so on. But at the same time, like, you know, it's, uh, I, I don't know the the answer. But you know, I've, I have heard some interesting arguments that people can, uh, if you're a smart person, you get educated, you could go back and become a sort of a, what is it, the, the term, a big fish in a small pond. You know, you could go back to your hometown and, and you know, run for city council or become mayor or sort of use that as a way to to wield more influence than you otherwise might have uh, versus if you're, you know, whatever, if you're a, a college educated person and you go to, to New York or LA or SF, you're just competing against a lot of other equally talented or perhaps even more talented people than you. So it's just a, a different, a different sort of competitive pool. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's rough, man. Um, and I, I, I appreciate it. So I remember when I sent you the manuscript, you said that, uh, this, and this was a huge relief to me, like when I was sending this manuscript out to people, people that I respect, writers like you that I admire, and people were saying like, you know, I, I read it all in one sitting. I remember you told me you read it all in one sitting. Other people, Zoomers, like young, you know, people younger than me, uh, who I was sort of uncertain about whether they would even read a book, you know, if their just brains have been sort of fried by TikTok. And people said that, um, yeah, they were surprised at how how much of a sort of a page turner it was. And that was really gratifying to to hear that. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to say that. Yeah, no, no. Um, it is uh, for the for the listeners out there. Uh, it is. You've lived a lot of life in your short life, actually, because um, it because your memoir um, it basically stops once you get to Yale, correct? Remember? Uh, after I graduate, and I make some some yeah. comments uh, about Cambridge, but that's basically the, the yeah where it ends. Yeah. Well, so um, I just want to say uh, back to um, you know, these cities. Uh, one thing I will say is, you know, uh, American Graffiti was set in Modesto, California, which is in the you know south of the center of the Central Valley. So it's in the southern San Joaquin. I think it's the northern San Joaquin Valley. Uh, mm. But in any case, not that far from Red Bluff. But, um, you know, and that's, you know, classic Americana. But uh, Modesto's still doing – Modesto's doing okay. There are some cities uh, that are doing better that are closer to, say, the main line between Sacramento and the Bay Area. If you're close enough to that, you're kind of close to the action, and people can – there are people that live in Modesto that probably work in San Francisco. That's what I'm saying. But, um, uh, you know, uh, this is affecting all of these central – Central Valley cities, and it's affecting a lot of America in terms of. Uh, um, I think that there is this um, great sorting, the big sort, and I, um, you know, just really quickly, you know, we will get to like all the tragic things that happened in your life, but uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll uh, preview some of them for the listeners. But um, I was thinking uh, recently, uh, like where people live, and so you know, I've been to Miami a bunch of times, and um, you know, for work. Um, I travel fair amount for work, uh, as as you know, Rob, and you know some of the listeners might have gleaned. Uh, you know, someday, by the way, um, just preview. 
uh actually not a preview it should it should have been out by now but um there should be a, by the time this podcast is out and you know just like breaking the fourth wall like we're recording this before your book is out uh but um i should have had a, I, I will have a podcast with my co-founders about what i do for most of my work because people are always surprised that whatever I, I do something else which i do but anyway um i go to miami and the thing about miami is it's great but um it's a great city but um it's very you know crass and consumer and it's all about like um, things, um, big houses, and you know your model girlfriend, um, you know, and your big, you know, like your sports car, and um, you know it's fine. Uh, but Miami is not an ideopolis. Uh, people like me, um, they, Miami tried to become a thing, and it just it couldn't do it. You know, I don't. It doesn't matter what the tax incentives are. San Francisco, for all its problems, it's got massive problems. Everyone knows what the problems are. That's where the AI revolution is coming out of. Um, mm-hmm. It's still got it's got still got the human capital. I would say L.A. also an ideopolis. Like it's not mm-hmm. quite the high mental caliber, but hey, film media that's out of L.A. Obviously, New York City. Um, and then beyond that, I don't know. In America, I would say Austin is a smaller one. Um, I would say Seattle had a chance to be one, but I think a lot of yeah, both Seattle and Portland as Pacific Northwest cities have kind of sullied their brand because of governance issues. Um, and I think a lot of people will think will think twice about moving there. They were getting a lot of people from California. Unfortunately for Chicago, um, air travel exists. And so uh, a, there's a lot of people like, say, like Nate Silver, uh, you know, Substacker. Uh, you know, he was in Chicago for a while and then he moved to New York. Okay, this is very common. Where you're in Chicago, and then you move to LA. Or uh, you're in Chicago, and then you move to Austin. This is like a very common thing now. And so um, returns to agglomeration, co-location, and concentration of intellectual capital is happening. You know, uh, the other big cities like Dallas is the insurance capital of America. New York, uh, Houston is obviously the petrochemical capital of America. You know, Seattle still has all the Boeing people and obviously Microsoft. Um, and so we're seeing this um, concentration uh, of economic uh, productivity, of uh, economic power, of intellectual power and influence. And uh, I don't know what we're going to do about it. Um, it seems pretty inevitable. And I'm not one to throw stones because, you know, I live in Austin. I could uh, – I mean, I, I can work remote. I can live wherever. But I live in Austin mostly because, you know, just like networking. You know, I get to see people like you come through town, living in the middle of the country – People from New York come, people from L.A. come, people from SF come, people from Chicago come. You know what I'm saying? The only place as far as a kind of Seattle, kind of the Pacific Northwest, but the Pacific Northwest is far from everywhere but California. So, um, you know, um, trust me, like I have done flights from Miami to Seattle, so I know how far it is. In any case, um, that's just a, a reality of the American cultural scene. And so you grew up in, um, I think, like, you know, mostly the 2000s, I would say. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. The, yeah. Kind of, I mean. My, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, my, my formative memory span from like the mid '90s uh, yeah. onward, but then like, yeah, my 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 sort of adolescence was sort of concentrated in like the mid mid 2000s. Yeah, yeah, and I, I'm 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 kind of like ten years shifted from you. Like, I remember the mid '80s real well. The early '80s is really vague for me, so I'm like mid '80s, and then my adolescence was in the '90s. You know, mm-hmm. and so we're we're like shifted off by like a decade there. Um, one one thing I would say though is, um, you know, you saw the early part of, I think, this great sort. And I think the book, The Great Sort, was written around that period, George H.W. administration. Um, and so uh, I think you were probably in real time seeing economic transformation in your life. But um, speaking of your life, uh, speaking of your book, uh, uh, you know, uh, there's some stuff in there that I, that I want to highlight, um, some troubling stuff, so to speak. 
<laughs> um, okay, talk about birthdays and like your um your discovery of what a birthday meant. Yeah, well, so my birthday is on December 18th. And in the foster homes, it usually went by unnoticed, uh, simply because of Christmas, because there were a lot of other kids in many of the homes I lived in. And in the schools, of course, it was uh, whatever Christmas break, winter break, it was the holidays. And so it wasn't, um, you know, I, I remembered we would have sort of, you know, we would hear that some it was some kid's birthday, maybe the teacher would have us all sing happy birthday. This is like, you know, first grade or something. And, uh, and yeah, so I, I would see it for other kids, it sort of went by unnoticed for me. Um, and it was hard. I mean, it wasn't hard in and of itself. But it was hard to see other kids get to celebrate their birthdays and then realize like, oh, well, why does that never happen for me? Um, and yeah, I never had toys, uh, growing up and, you know, while I was in the homes and then later, uh, for my eighth birthday, after I had been adopted, uh, that was the first birthday I had where I received Christmas presents. I received a bicycle, which is, uh, so on the cover of the book, there's a picture of me riding a bike for my, uh, eighth birthday. And yeah, that was, uh, you know, it was just a, a, a shocking moment for me because I remember we were like, oh, you know, we're going to go to your grandma and grandpa's for your birthday. Like, oh, okay. That's nice. You know? And I expected uh, maybe a cake or something, you know, sort of remembering how other kids' birthdays went. Uh, but then when I saw, you know, a pile of, of birthday gifts uh, in the center of the living room and I'm like unwrapping these, you know, little toy dinosaurs and stuff. And I'm like, wow, like this is, you know, it was just a surreal experience. Um, and yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was just sort of gratifying, uh, you know, stark contrast to to before where, you know, I, I remember I said aloud to, to, to my, my adoptive family, like, you know, wow, I, I have never gotten gifts before. And they were uh, all basically said, we're, we're trying to make up for it now. Um, and then, uh, you know, just when I thought it was all done, then they wheel out this bicycle. And uh, yeah, it was just a really, uh, you know, really sort of highlight highlight of my childhood was that uh, was that first birthday where I received gifts before that, you know, I didn't have toys, really, I had some, um, you know, so like for Valentine's Day, I remember in school, some of the kids would pass around like Valentine's cards. And you know, this was like, you know, even even at this point in the 90s, it was like, you know, you have to bring one for every single kid. Otherwise, you know, otherwise, it's whatever, like non inclusive or something. I don't that wasn't the, the terminology they used. But it's basically like, you know, if you're going to give cards, you have to give a card to every other kid. And I never had them for anyone. Um, but other kids, you know, would pass them around the whole class. And so I have like, you know, cards of like Sonic or Super Mario or whatever. And I would take these Valentine's cards and stuff them in my pocket. And I would take them home and put them in this little shoebox. And then those were the toys that I had where I'd play with like this little like Valentine's card of Sonic or Super Mario or whatever. And those are the toys I had. I did find a, a Mighty Ducks hockey puck under one of my uh, uh, one of the foster homes. There was it was underneath the bed. And I played with that for a while, too. But um, yeah, otherwise, yeah, it was, um, you know, just this kind of uh, um, rootless, uh, impoverished kind of life of not really having much in the way of material belongings, sort of hand-me-down clothes. And, you know, some of the foster parents were, I mean, it was mostly just neglect. None of them were, I don't think, you know, I, I had one that was kind of more malicious than the others. But overall, it was just a kind of neglect, a lot of sort of kids coming and going. They didn't have a lot of resources or time to devote to any other kid or to any specific kid. And so it was just a, a sort of a whirlwind. Uh, and that's this, you know, I try to paint that sort of picture of like just a kid sort of you don't know where you're going to go next. Um, but then you didn't know which foster siblings would be there tomorrow either, whether, you know, a social worker would come or whether one of their parents would finally sort of sober up and become fit enough to, to be a parent again, at least temporarily and come to get the kid. And so it was just a lot of um, 
uncertainty uh, in day to day life. The toy thing was was hard, and you know people people do notice that. And it was that was those were some of the harder passages for me to write. But it was more so the the worst part of it was just that sort of instability and uncertainty of it. Well, I mean, so one thing that um, I will say is, you know, I don't think you were ever hungry, but there's almost a Dickensian air to some of these earlier chapters. Am I wrong in that? You know, so so people have mentioned that Wesley Yang mentioned that uh, about my book too. He he uh, uh, used that term, and I know, like, I know that term, and I know what it refers to, but I've never actually read Charles Dickens. I know that it has something to do with like Oliver Twist, who was an orphan, and just a lot of sort of hardship and struggle. And you know, it wasn't my intention. You know, I wasn't trying to follow in the footsteps of some line of you know writing about orphans as a kid or something like that. It was just you know, my, you know, my, my, my lived experience or whatever, it was just sort of what I went through. And, uh, and it turned out to just sort of match that, um, you know, that kind of literary trope or whatever, but it wasn't uh, what I set out to do. And, um, you know, the style, you know, the way that I wrote it, I remember going back and forth with my editors, and they noticed that it was kind of austere, this kind of um, terse writing style. But I said, like, that's, you know, first, like I'm trying to communicate in the way that I I was understanding the world at that age, which means, you know, it wasn't going to be sophisticated. It wasn't going to be kind of this purple prose or anything. It was just sort of straightforward observations about what I was seeing and my reaction to it. Um, and then the other thing was like, I, I almost had to write that way because it was, it was pretty difficult actually to sort of resurface a lot of those memories and the way that I could do it. And in a way that I thought was the most effective was to just write it in a very sort of blunt and straightforward way. Uh, and that's kind of how it came out. And I think it actually ended up being, you know, at least uh, somewhat effective. Yeah. Um, I, you know, uh, the the thing is, um, the emotional, uh, you know, because a lot of people, I mean, I don't know, my parents were a little cloying sometimes. Let me just say it. <laughs> just like, you know, I was their first kid and I was kind of spoiled. And, you know, just like reading some of the stuff. It was, I mean, I'm a parent, so it was like a little hard, I think. Uh, if you're a parent to read some of that, because it's just like, oh, man, like, you know, imagine if I wasn't there and like people were treating my kid like that. And I don't want, you know, like, I don't want to talk too much in detail about the foster system, but because like people know a lot about it. But uh, one of your foster parents, I think I think she was Latina. Um, she yep. kind of treated you as like hired help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She this was a pattern with her. I didn't realize this until I was about to leave. Um, but yeah, I, so this was the only home I, that, that I was the only foster kid. So most other, fo- most of the foster homes, I just, re- you know, there would be eight, 10, 12 kids living in them. And it was just sort of chaotic where, you know, sometimes it would be, it wasn't like we were in, yeah, like, like, I don't know. I imagine like Charles Dickens novels of like, you know, a bunch of kids huddled up in a room cold or something. It wasn't quite like that level, but it was like, you know, maybe two kids to a room or three kids to a room. And it was just kind of a lot of kids everywhere all the time. Um, but then um, I, the, the final foster home I lived in, uh, I lived with this one in, in the book. I, you know, I changed a lot of the names and some of the details and stuff in the book. I refer to her as Mrs. Martinez and uh, she had a husband and she had two adult kids uh, who were out of the house, but she still took usually one foster boy at a time. And essentially she liked to have one boy to just kind of, uh, you know, keep up with the chores and the housework and kind of, you know, yard work and things like that. So they had this little pool in the backyard and, um, this sort of little in-ground pool. And so she would have me, you know, take the, the the pool net and clean out the leaves and sort of clean the gutters in the house and rake the leaves and sweep and mop the floors. Uh, and you know, she had two dogs, which I fed every day and sort of, you know, scooped up the dog poop. And she had a pet parrot later um, who she named Carlos, but she insisted that I call the pet parrot Mr. Carlos. 
And I hated that bird because it was like, you know, I would try to feed it and I'd try to like pour the bird seed or whatever. And it would like squawk and attack me. And, um, you know, so she was just a little bit of an eccentric woman who just insisted that everything in the house and everything in the yard kind of be spotless and well-maintained. Uh, and, you know, I remember uh, at one point I asked her like, you know, I don't remember having to do all this in the other foster homes. And she said something along the lines of like, you know, it's it's good for you. It kind of keeps you out of trouble. And, you know, it sort of keeps you, you know, away from the troublemakers in the neighborhood. And I don't think that was she wasn't exactly wrong about that. Like, whatever, like every minute I spent whatever um, uh, cleaning, cleaning the gutters is one minute I wasn't, you know, sort of spending with the other kids in the neighborhood doing, you know, doing stupid things. But, um, you know, it was it was a bit self-serving logic, too, where, you know, she liked to liked it to be this way. I remember in the weeks before I was set to depart and move in with my adoptive family, I overheard her adult daughter on the phone, um, you know, basically sort of speaking with, I don't know who she was speaking to, but essentially something like, uh, you know, she only likes to have one boy at a time. And then it was like, oh, no, she doesn't like to have teenagers. She likes to have young boys. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it, you know at, at the time, I was like, oh, you know, I didn't really pay that much attention. I sort of, okay, so it sounds like another boy's moving in. Am I getting a foster brother? Oh, no, it's going to be a replacement. But in hindsight, I'm sort of, oh, she didn't want a teenage boy, probably because a teenage boy would rebel against her and say, like, I'm not going to do all this shit. Like, what are you talking, you know, but, uh, but a boy, eight, seven, eight, nine years old, you know, of course, like, it's it's easier to sort of control them and get them to do what you want. Um, why a boy? I don't actually know. I, to my knowledge, it was always boys. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was kind of, uh, the situation there. She was just kind of, uh, a cold woman. Um, you know, it was, uh, I, I remember it was, in, in some ways I actually missed having foster siblings around, even though that sort of introduced a lot of chaos and, you know, just, uh, like fighting over remote TV shows and food and, um, you know, violence and weird things would happen with the kids, but it was still in some ways preferable to just like this one kind of angry woman, um, you know, sort of looking over my shoulder and, and making sure that I was keeping up with the chores. And she really didn't care about, about schoolwork. I remember, um, you know, I didn't, uh, I didn't really pay much attention in school and the teachers would sometimes call and she didn't really seem to mind as long, as long as I was keeping up with the house maintenance stuff. Um, there was a period in that house where my grades were so low that they sent a psychologist to the house, the, the state, or maybe it was my social worker sent a, a psychologist to the house to test me. Uh, they gave me an IQ test. Um, I think they thought I might've had a learning disability or something, um, because my grades were, were so, um, were so bad. And, you know, I just remember like not really giving it much effort. You know, I, some of the questions were interesting to me, some of them weren't, and I gave it this sort of half-hearted effort, but I remember being really angry about this. Um, cause it felt like I was doing schoolwork at home. Like, you know, now I have to, you know, like, okay, so now they bring this person here and I'm doing like, like answering these questions and it feels like school again. And, um, and yeah, so, so I got the results as an, as an adult, uh, my, my adoptive mother gave me this case file full of all this documentation and everything. And I saw my, my overall IQ was something like 90. And then my verbal score was like 80, uh, 83 or something. And yeah, I, and, and it was, it was just a sort of scattered. It was a mess because my math score was like 115, but my verbal was an 80. And it was just like, you could tell that I was only putting an effort in certain areas, but not others. And it was, and, and I think the, you know, it was, it was like 90 overall. So I'm like, oh, he's basically like average intelligence. They didn't like enroll me in any kind of special needs programs or anything. Um, but I do think like that was, you know, in hindsight, a kind of an example of sort of the limits of trying to 
uh, measure IQ for a kid who's just kind of in this bizarre and extremely unusual uh, environment um, and, and using that as a sort of a metric for yeah. their for their overall ability. Yeah, for sure. Um, this is why uh, we should definitely take Paige Harden's advice in the genetic lottery and uh, uh, do polygenic polygenic um, you know score indices and get your uh, your genomic IQ and that would actually have been much more accurate because it doesn't matter how hard you try or don't try. <laughs> Trying to be oh, a little yeah. subversive. Try to be a little subversive here for the listeners. You know what I'm saying? Um, uh, also, by the way, you know, I don't think I'm very funny, but um, I got a feedback recently that uh, from a friend of mine who started listening to the podcast, like, oh, you're very funny. And I was like, really? I don't know. But whatever. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> you um, are, you're funny. <laughs> um, anyway. Uh, okay. So um, the foster care system, you know, I, I think um, so there's a part in the, you know, this was like reported in Cosmos, uh, Carl Sagan's book from the 1980s. You know, there's a thing where um, – Basically, uh, baby monkeys prefer affection and like low amounts of food to lots of food and no affection. And I think the biggest like thing takeaway from the foster care system is no matter how you felt um, at the time, I think just reading it as a person who never went through any experience like that and has never, you know, has had children or has children, uh, you know, you you suffered um, from a deficit of just like, you know, adult. I mean, they basically were there to keep you alive and out of trouble. Yeah. And then the rest, you were kind of a free range wild child. That's that's right. I mean, yeah, what, what you described uh, from from the Sagan text, I mean, it reminds me of uh, uh, Harry Harlow's monkey studies, right, where he had this sort of the clock yeah. mother and the wire mother. And, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. That's what I'm yeah, talking yeah. about. The illustrations were in the Sagan book. Okay. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, for, for the listener. Yeah. So, so this, this is a psychologist in the 1950s did these studies that would be considered extremely unethical today, but he basically, you know, in one case they take, took these baby monkeys and, uh, you know, they, they gave them a choice. There was like this sort of, you know, this, this, this figure that looked like a wire, it kind of looked like a monkey, but it gave out uh, milk. It was, it gave out sort of sustenance to the monkey. And then there was a cloth mother. It was a sort of a soft nurturing, um, sort of shaped like a monkey sort of like a stuffed animal and then just sort of saw where the monkey spent most of their time and they would go get the food from the wire mother but then they spent most of their time sort of huddled up next to the cloth mother indicating that like yeah that sort of uh skin to skin contact that sort of warmth that nurturing care like you know monkeys who who had that uh subsequently were sort of appeared to be more emotionally stable and more sort of sociable and more sort of developed than the monkeys who had no wire mother and only were exposed or had no cloth mother and were only exposed to the wire mother. And so, you know, I think about that. I mean, yeah, there is something to this that, um, you know, a lot, you know, I, I document some of the statistics in the later chapters of my book about, you know, if you compare children who were born in the bottom socioeconomic quintile in the US and look at their outcomes compared to children who live in the foster care system, foster kids turn out you know, much worse, like, you know, far, far worse uh, in terms of graduation rates and uh, 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 psychiatric diagnoses and all kinds of things. I mean, you know, I'm sure there are some genetic confounds and all these kinds of things. But I think that, you know, one of the one of the findings or one of the sort of uh, takeaways from the Harlow studies is, yeah, you can take sort of perfectly healthy monkeys at a very young age and put them in an environment where they have sort of no, uh, no sort of emotional or physical contact or sustenance and just feed them and keep them alive. And they will sort of develop sort of maladaptive coping mechanisms and become sort of a little bit socially awkward and weird and, and, and develop all kinds of emotional problems. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm as much of a, you know, believer in behavioral genetics as the, as the next, uh, you know, it's the next evil right winger, but I think it has its limits for like sort of extreme uh, kind of environments, uh, which I think the foster care system is, is, is one of them. 
Yeah, I mean, so the behavior genetics of Sandra Scar has this uh, model of like good enough environments, and so I think that's that's one way you could think of a lot of these issues. Um, mm. You know, when you actually do have legit environmental deprivation that causes issues. I mean, like, so for example, uh, you know, and there are still societies in the world where how heavy you are correlates with your social status uh, in in like a in a positive correlation. Uh, higher social status people are bigger because they get more food. In the United States, it's not like that at all. And actually, the biggest correlation is just IQ now. Hmm. Um, so when they do studies for – so there's the FTO gene, which affects metabolism. But when they do studies for like these obesity genes, obesogenic genes, they actually have to filter out um, loci that are associated with behavior now. And this is why um, you know semaglutide, semaglutide and all these things, um, they tend to suppress all sorts of addictive behavior in general. Um, so it's obviously a behavioral psychological issue of overeating now in the United States, right? Um, so that just shows you that, you know, and this is called norma reaction uh, in the behavior genetic and the genetic literature where you have heritable variation, you have genetic differences, but they express differently in different environments. The one thing that I would say in the United States is um, to a great extent, I would say like the top two thirds maybe um, or at least the top half like have a good enough environment. So, you know, when you see differences between siblings and one sibling stupid and another sibling smart in upper middle class household, that's not due to differences in, you know, obviously the resources given. It's just mm-hmm. one of them is is less intelligent. The other is more intelligent. And a lot of that is correlated with genetics uh, yeah. within, you know, depending on what you believe the heritability value is. So there's a famous Turkheimer study. Um, I think you probably know about it. And like there's arguments about whether it's real and whether it's like replicated. It's kind of a little too neat that the heritability of IQ goes up the higher your social status. And the argument there is all the environmental variables um, are really a big deal in the lower bottom half of the socioeconomic. Um, You know, so, for example, I mean, if you're a kid who's sniffing glue, you're probably not upper middle class. Upper middle class kids are monitored. uh, They're controlled. They're regimented. And like all the environmental issues are smoothed out. Um, so there are adoption studies that show that, you know, kids adopting to upper middle class households don't converge back to their like, you know, genetic IQ or whatever, the IQ of their, of their biological parents for like 20 years. So these upper middle class households have a protective effect um, over time. Gene environment correlation, passive gene environment correlation, people converge back to different social environments. But the point being here is that, um, you know, good enough environment results in like high heritability, but a not good enough environment obviously causes some issues. Um, you know, I know that you have a um, you do well on psychometric tests. We can talk about that later. There's a reason you got into Yale, but uh, you were not focused when you were a little kid. You know, yeah. Um, right. And uh, yeah, so I mean, it's just, and I will just give my own family as an example. Um, I mean, I think I'd say this: like, I have a sibling, and uh, you know, uh, they had some. Not nearly as extreme as you, you know, but uh, let's just say in high school, they were not on the straight and narrow, but my parents were not, they're not, they're not like Koreans or anything like that. They're not th- that type of Asian, but there was an expectation. You go to college, you get your college degree. And that expectation was like, not even elucidated. It wasn't even said. It's just, everyone understood what it was. And, you know, my sibling went to college, graduated, has a master's, is on the way to an upper middle class life, you know, despite, you know, like a little bit of. I would say truancy, it wasn't very bad. Okay, there was like no threat of expulsion or anything like that. But, you know, there was a period where in a different type of family with different expectations, they might have gone to community college and, you know, 
maybe worked as a manager at Target. I don't know. I'm just giving examples of things that I've seen where you just kind of take certain things for granted and you push people in certain ways and they might have the same endowments as another person. And, you know, with the SAT and the, you know, psychometric data, you do see that, you know, lower class people who have like very high IQs have the same probability of going to college as a upper class person, like a legit upper class person with a low IQ. And that just shows you two things interact, right? And, um, you know, a lot of our listeners, and actually I've done demographic surveys, uh, the listeners themselves tend to be from middle to upper middle class backgrounds. Um, and right now they're, most of them are upperly mobile, I would say. Like a lot of these, you know, a lot of you listeners are in tech um, and you did well for yourself. You're the, probably the smartest person in your family, candidly. Um, so these sorts of uh, experiences that you're going to be reading in Rob's book, hope, check it out. Um, check out the book, obviously, Troubled, but uh, it's going to be shocking to you. Uh, you're not going to know too many people. The, one issue I will say that in my circles, you know, PMC, professional managerial class, there are people that have gone through what you've gone through, but they're not necessarily ashamed of it, but they don't talk about it because it's just so difficult to explain, you know? Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm, I want to jump ahead real quick because I'll go back. I want to talk about some experiences in high school because a lot of this stuff is before Yale. Um, I think candidly, like to me, that was the most interesting stuff because like I know people that went to, you know, Yale, whatever. It's not like super, you know what I'm saying? It's not like, Super dramatic, like, you know, um, <laughs> uh, unless you're Nicholas Christakis. But, um, <laughs> you know. Hey, he, he uh, really liked it. He, uh, so, he, so Christakis, yeah, he endorsed the book. And, yeah, because I, I talk a, a bit in – well, we can get to this, I guess. But I talk about some yeah. of the stuff that happened with him and his wife at Yale yeah. from my perspective. But he, I had him read them, those chapters particularly, because I wanted to make sure I got the facts right. You know, I had my reaction and my feelings about it, but I wanted to make sure I got all the details right. And he – yeah, he sort of clarified some of the things that happened there. Um, but, yeah, yeah, sorry. Go on. Well, um, you know, when you went to Yale, mm. you know, you're around people and, you know, these HPY, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, the um, the class status uh, is very high. Mm. Um, the median is upper, upper middle class, you know, uh, middle class people are at the bottom. And then there's like a tiny number of people, a, a relatively small number of people that are lower class. And I would say by the time you got to Yale, you were. Well, you had been in the military, but um, you're and like we'll get back to this. But your your class status, can I say, in some ways, your experience of the American middle class as a child kind of peaked the first couple of years of you being adopted. That's probably right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's sort of like lower middle class. Yeah. 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 But like yeah, secure yeah. enough, that, you know, like you can watch a TV show and kind of relate to some of the things like the Wonder Years. Oh, or something, oh, sure. you know? yeah, yeah. Like my my yeah, my my adoptive parents for the first couple of years, they were married and my my dad would be away. my adoptive dad. He would be away. He was a, a truck driver. My mom was an assistant social worker. Like, yeah, that's sort of, you know, they were they, you know, they, they put together a sort of a comfortable lower middle class environment for my sister and me. And they were married. We were in like a kind of a, a, a nice little neighborhood. And yeah, yeah. So that's that's probably well. The, and she, and your sister is a biological child of your adopted parents. That's right. Yeah. 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 So, so okay. Any any case, but um. So when you're at Yale, you know, you're around people that come from such different backgrounds, and and also you know a lot of people here know um you know there's a lot of affirmative action and legacies and all these things. These preferences do not go for class, really. Mm -hmm. Um. In fact, especially if you're white, they cut against you. Um, you know, there's a massive underrepresentation of middle to lower class white people at the Ivy Leagues. A lot of the minorities, underrepresented minorities, are actually from quite prosperous backgrounds. Um, they have 
tried from what I've heard in the seventies to target. And there are some people who are from very, very lower class deprived backgrounds. You know, they're coming from the inner city to these places, but um, when they tried to do large numbers of those, they just could not um, assimilate them. Let's just put it that way. Um, Also, they weren't prepared. Um, They have to be very, very, uh, very, very special kids. Whereas like, you know, if you're, you know, middle class, upper middle class, uh, black kid or upper middle class Latino kid in San from San Diego, um, you can fit in at Yale. I mean, you might not have the same standardized tests and GPA, but whatever, you can fit in. You know, uh, you on the other hand, um, look a lot like a lot of the other Yale students. You look kind of Asian, vaguely, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but your background um, was like totally. I mean, like you were a punk. You know what yeah. I'm saying? I mean, I guess I'm asking is like, did you even like? How many times did you just encounter where it's like people are talking about their backgrounds? You're like, you're not even going to try to start to really explain because they won't no, understand. I, yeah, that was basically it. And and it's funny, like the way that you describe some of your friends who, you know, you'd mentioned some of them did grow up this way, but they just don't talk about it because it's just difficult to explain. Right. Like if you you know, if you if you are an ethnic minority and it's sort of visibly so people immediately just sort of. Um, you know, impute certain characteristics onto you and you don't need to say anything. But if you sort of can kind of blend in physically, but you've had, you know, extraordinarily different experiences, uh, it's just hard to to explain it all. And, you know, I didn't really want pity. I didn't want like people to feel bad for me. It wasn't like that. I mean, I guess like the closest it ever came, you know, like some people would, um, you know, they would learn that I was in the military or something. And that was kind of as far as it went of like, oh, you have a little bit of a different experience. You were enlisted before. And what was that like? And that's it. And that's kind of, but then, yeah, I would, I would hear all kinds of, you know, like people, you know, especially during the, the, the student protests in 2015, that sort of, you know, all of the demonstrations against uh, the Christakis and, you know, trying to get professors fired and making demands on the president. And I just like, I just found the whole thing absurd, honestly. I mean, I didn't, I didn't live on campus either. So, you know, I would, I would see, you know, the children of millionaires talking about how they were oppressed or how they were marginalized or didn't feel safe on campus or felt like their voices weren't being heard. And, you know, these were, you know, rich students at one of the richest universities in the world. And then I'd walk through downtown New Haven back to my apartment on Chapel Street. Uh, and, you know, I would see like I'd walk through the New Haven Green and I would see, you know, people who were strung out or people who were, had mental illness or who were homeless or coolie just generally unwell. And, you know, then I would think about the people I grew up around and the people who I had lived with and all of the experiences that I'd had. And I would just think like this is just so, you know, and, and, and the fact that all of those those you know, supposed expressions of pain from these students were being validated by all of the professors and the administration and the president and everything. And I just, um, you know, it was so, so at odds with my experience of, of what, you know, the terms they were using, what it all meant, you know, what, what does trauma mean? What does danger mean? What does pain mean? Well, apparently it just means like, you know, a student or a professor wrote an email that you disagree with. And so, yeah, it just was very difficult for me to, to reconcile that with, with my upbringing. And so, yeah, I spent a good portion of some of the later chapters describing that, um, and realizing that it wasn't just economic class, right? Like I kind of knew going in, like Yale's a pretty well-known university. I knew like, oh, you know, you're going to meet a lot of like rich kids or whatever. Like I understood that, you know, I'd watched, you know, I'd watched by that point, you know, whatever the OC or episodes of Gossip Girl. Like I sort of knew like, you know, at least the the pop culture representation of, of some of these places. Um, but it wasn't until, you know, sort of speaking with the students and learning more about their family backgrounds that I realized like, oh, it's not just economic class. There really is like social class is different. It's, you know, sort of the way you grow up, the cultural capital you have, the sort of experiences, you're sort of having those family inputs, you know, having a mom, having a dad, having people around you who care, sort of checking in on you with your homework, even like marriage rates. I mean, I don't think I think I had one friend growing up 
whose parents were married. Um, although even there, there were there were some sort of domestic issues with his dad cheating on his mom and some other things like that. But, you know, there was one friend that I had like this. But then at Yale, literally every single person I ever met, um, you know, I, I could probably count on one hand the number of people who maybe had like a step parent or something else. But just about every person I met, they were sort of raised by both of their birth parents and sort of had uh, that stable family life that um, that I that was just completely unfamiliar to me um, beforehand. You know, I, I, I described this this um, this situation that I was in in one of my classes where the professor anonymously administered this poll and 18 out of the 20 students in my class said they were raised by both of their birth parents. And I'm like, 18 out of 20, like that's, you know, whatever, 90%. Um, and I was like, yeah, that was like basically flipped the reverse opposite of, of the way that I grew up and the people that I knew. Um, and yeah, it was just, uh, sort of the beginning of my interest in, you know, just what are the differences between the people who go to Yale and the people who, well, like you'd mentioned earlier and the people who go to jail or, or, you know, maybe, you know, or, or just work in sort of menial jobs or just sort of have, you know, less, less promising outcomes. Yeah. Yeah, and I like I like to put numbers out there just to be concrete. Uh, average household income, it's not the family income, but the household income is like $75,000 in the U.S. right now. I think family income is like the low 100s. Yale, the household, uh, I think the average family income, it says family. I think this is a household, but um, they say family on the student website. It's like 198000 Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, yeah, there are, which is there are okay. students. At Yale, there are more students from families in the top 1% of the income distribution than the entire bottom 60%. Right. And so it's, yeah, like you said, it's sort of the median, it's sort of upper, upper middle class, upper class. I mean, it's, you know, just extraordinarily um, fortunate uh, financially, but then, you know, beyond that, just sort of culturally, socially, um, you know, there, there's been, you know, and I, I discuss some of this in the, in the chapters in my book about, um, you know, if you take one student from the sort of upper middle class and, and, and a student from the working class, and they both graduate with the same degree, um, the student from the upper middle class is still going to go on to earn, you know, something like $330,000 more, uh, over the course of the next decade, something like that. Uh, and that's, you know, that's, so they have the same degree, but you know, there are other factors involved besides just going to college, there's cultural capital, there's access, there's the confidence that comes from having, uh, you know, from being a, what they call a continuing generation student versus a first generation student where, you know, if you're a first gen student, you're kind of on your own trying to navigate this environment, trying to understand internships, trying to understand how to apply for different programs and, different jobs and what's expected of you and the language and how to, you know, exhibit that sort of comfort and ease in those environments. Whereas if you have a parent, at least one parent who graduated from college and can kind of coach you or call up one of their friends and say like, Hey, can you talk to so-and-so about this career and kind of what to expect for an interview? I mean, all of those little things add up such that, um, you know, in the long run, uh, you know, it, it, we're, we're sort of focusing on getting people into college, but you know, the, the disparities are not like, they're never going to be perfectly equal. And I don't even mind that, you know, one of the points I try to make in the book is like, yeah, okay, it's, it's, you know, I'm not against whatever, like trying to find more talented kids and getting them into good educations or getting them into good schools, getting them good educations, getting them into high paying jobs, like all of those things are fine. But that's not like, you know, that's, that's sort of one thing we could be focusing on. But another we could also be focusing on is sort of the the early family experiences of the kid, um, sort of looking at what happens before age 18, as well as what happens after age 18, uh, that may also be affecting them. Um, and, you know, I make this point that even if every, every foster kid or every kid who just sort of grows up in sort of poverty and squalor goes on to get, you know, some fancy degree from a fancy school, that's not going to just suddenly make up for everything that they'd went through. Uh, when they were kids. Um, and I think that one ingredient of social mobility would be 
um, just kind of ensuring that the kid is in a place where they're living in a stable situation where their parents are checking in on them, making sure they're doing homework, making sure they're they're staying out of trouble, things that I didn't have growing up that even though I clearly had some, you know, some some curiosity and some aptitude, you know, it wasn't really being channeled very much simply because my my home life was such a mess. And it took a it took, you know, essentially eight years in the military for me to get to the point where I was focused enough to do well in college. You, you mentioned before, you know, they these some of these Ivy League schools did recruit students from the inner city, Latino kids, black kids, whatever. But they just were unfocused and weren't able to sort of um, integrate themselves into that kind of university campus environment. If you had taken me when I was 17 or 18, you know, and, and tried to like get me to go to Yale, even with, you know, my my sort of um, uh, academic inclinations, you know, I was I was kind of a smart, I, I graduated with a 2.2 GPA, but I was still like probably the smartest one of all of my friends. And I like I was like, OK, like, you know, the the, the raw material for doing well in school was there. But my habits were completely undeveloped. My mindset was totally off. My interests, my my impulse control, all of those things were just not in a good place. And so, yeah, I probably wouldn't have done very well if uh, these schools had tried to recruit me when I was 18. And I had to, uh, yeah, essentially like learn self-discipline uh, as a young adult. And then later, by the time I was 25 and I got to campus, I was like, okay, sort of mature enough and ready to 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 do well in, in college um so, so and i think that sort of speaks to you know if you take kids who are in completely chaotic unpromising situations and try to get them to go to college it's just not going to work uh they need some of that discipline and some of that structure if parents can provide it provide it that would be that would be great so that you know maybe they don't have to spend eight years in the military to learn those skills yeah um there's a lot you said there, um, and I want to talk about you in high school. Uh, we've been going for a while, so I don't want to, um, you know, not jump back. But um, in terms of the college thing, let me just say, you know, as you know, um, and as a lot of listeners know, people like Brian Kaplan have been talking about the signaling effect of university. Uh, getting to Ivy Leagues, really the biggest thing is the signaler. Um, mm. They don't really learn that much more. They were already smart. They were already rule jumpers and rule followers. It's just a way to get to McKinsey or Goldman. Right. Um, or become a politician in your home state uh, if you're a Democrat. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, uh, they're not adding that much value. What they're adding, what they're conferring on you is that you are, you know, could be part of the American elite, uh, you know, guaranteed, you know, upper middle class lifestyle. If you if you so choose, you know, mm-hmm. um, there are people that mess up and that, like, you know, are not, you know, whatever. They have addictions. They have other things. OK, we know we know those people. Those people are very, very big in media representation because they're so countercultural. But most people that go to Harvard have boring lives and become lawyers, doctors, management consultants, um, et cetera. Okay? Mm-hmm. That's their life. That's what most of them do. Um, I, you know, you were talking about these networks. Um, I will tell you, and I, I think I've talked about this before, you know, in academia, which you're in academia, I was in academia, um, there's a lot of tacit uh, knowledge that's passed in academic families. Academia is one of the most heritable professions. So mm-hmm. Something like Twenty-five percent of professors have a parent who's a professor, which is a, mm-hmm. like you know, Insane. orders of magnitude above. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like MBA MBA player level, level high. Um, mm-hmm. So it's highly heritable. But so what's going on here? Um, you know, doctors are smart, lawyers are smart. But you know, I have a friend who, when he was in graduate school, and you know, he went to Berkeley. You know, great, great, you know, geneticist guy. But um, he's out of academia now, so I think I can say that. Uh, but. When he went to academia, when he went to grad school, one thing he noticed was his par- his friends whose parents were academics already knew a bunch of things that are not laid out in whatever manual or in orientation, you know? Uh, you know, for example, like, 
look, it's great that if you get high grades for your, you know, certain fellowships and stuff like that, but to have an academic career, it's really what you publish that matters. You know, um, mm -hmm. this is not always explicitly explained. It's just understood uh, because they don't want to, they don't want to tell you, Hey, don't sweat it. If you get a B, they really do want you to like focus in coursework, but they're not going to tell you because, you know, they're going to make you take these courses, but you know, this is not why you're here. This is not undergrad. Like you're here to basically work and have a job and write papers, mm -hmm. but you're officially a student. They're going to give you a stipend, but you're officially a student. So the whole thing is a little weird that way. Um, and, you know, it really matters. Um, you know, it's a, it's, it's a finite, it's a finite uh, supply of jobs. It really matters who your mentor is because your mentor is going to give you to another mentor to be a postdoc advisor. And that postdoc advisor and your mentor are going to give you recommendations. And those recommendations are going to be weighted because they're all going to be good. Unless you're, unless it's British, they're all going to be good. So what matters is who they are, not what they say, because everyone's going to say you're great. <laughs> and so you have to know all of this stuff starting out to actually have a chance uh, to be a tenured professor. Now you get, you can figure it out in the first year, but my friend just said, oh, like his friends whose parents were academics, they knew all of it from the get go because they had seen it. They had seen their parents on hiring committees and they knew like, oh, so-and-so has a good pedigree. Oh, pedigree is really important. You know, it's like pedigree is incredibly important. Uh, there are people with good pedigrees and uh, thin publication records that get jobs. That's just fundamentally a fact. You can overcome it with a really great publication records, but don't be a mediocre if you don't have a good pedigree. If you have an assistant professor um, as a mentor, for example, it's going to be harder because the assistant professor doesn't have a worked out pedigree. They are themselves relying on another network. And they're not there to be able to like push you forward. Anyway, these are all things that are implicit and that are understood, and they exist in other. You know, I have a friend who's a doctor, and his parents are not doctors; um, they're engineers. But uh, you know, he was told during interviews, "It's going to work against you that your parents are not doctors." Yeah, because they just they prefer people who are doctors in the family because then they know how to do the profession. So this sort of stuff is real. Um, I had Greg Clark on; he talked about the heritability of social status. That's a thing. Um, I will mention really quickly with. Um, the educational attainment paper, one thing that they noticed, um, and James Lee has talked about this multiple times, is that the correlation in the polygenic score for educational attainment is higher than the educational attainment itself between men and women. So that means that, that, means that people are more strongly correlated on their genes for educational attainment than they are from the, for the characteristic itself, which means that people are recognizing something in someone else beyond just the external exoteric like output. There's a latent variable there. That's the way I'm going to say it. There's a latent variable. That they're, they're, pick, yeah. they're, picking up, they're picking up on something else. So, um, you know, it, which is, this is like a lot to throw at like the audience and the, just, like in the context of what you're writing about. But, you know, any, any understanding of class, I think, does need to acknowledge that there are, um, there's a whole implicit network of things that we just don't talk about. And America doesn't have class the way Britain does has class. Partly we don't talk about it. And so in a way, like it can develop in its own, you know, evolutionary implicit, <laughs> you know, but I'm um, just the words you use, the way you carry yourself. You know, I have a friend, um, I'm going to say who it is, but you know, he's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. He's a tech guy and, you know, his parents are immigrants. And I remember um, when and he's not with this woman anymore, but um, she complained to me. Uh, many years ago that he kind of ate in a very and his parents are physicians by the way he's 
grew up very upper middle class, but they're immigrants. And so they didn't like raise him. And they're like, he, and she said like when she took him to her family and they were kind of waspy, you know, hmm. that he ate in a very uncouth way. <laughs> they felt like the way he used the utensils, the way he chewed, you know what I'm saying? Um, and she was like, like, he's just classless. I'm like, no, he just doesn't understand your codes because his parents are immigrants, you know, obviously he's a really smart guy. He's worth like, you know, hundreds of millions now. And, you know, you know, whatever he can buy like a town or what? I don't know. Uh, but my point is like, there's like unwritten codes and those of us who are immigrants, like have to figure it out. Um, no matter how assimilated we are, you in a way are an immigrant to America because you're from the foster care system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my, well, my mother was an immigrant and my father, I yeah. mean, you know, probably was, or at least, you know, not far removed from, from being an immigrant and, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's an interesting point. You know, I I tell one story in in the book about this where I was I was stationed in Germany. This was 2012 to 2015, and I dated this German girl who was a university student at that time. I think I was held was like 22, 23, and um, she was I think like a couple years younger than me. But yeah, she was a smart university student, and her parents. You know, I was I was a little nervous, like what her parents would think. You know, her her dating this American guy, this military guy, whatever. And they were really nice. They were really friendly, whatever. Um, and she was probably like upper middle class. And I, I went there for I think it was lunch and her mother prepared this dish and she was glaring at me because I was eating it and I was cutting the food with the side of my fork instead of using my fork and my knife. You know, just using the side of the fork. And that's that was very common in Red Bluff. That's sort of common, I think, among like working class people in general is like just use the fork and use the side of it, cut it and eat it. Um, and then my girlfriend sort of leaned over. She's like, you should use your knife, you know, and then, uh, I'm like, okay, use the knife. And, you know, I wasn't well practiced with it. So I kept switching hands to use it. I wasn't used to eating food with my left hand. And so I would sort of cut it with the right hand and then sort of switch the fork over and then eat, use that with, to eat, to pick up the food with my right hand. And, um, it was another period or another moment too, in this, that same, same, uh, same girl, same family where I was, you know, her mom saw me drinking, uh, uh, I think it was like a Coke zero right out of the, the bottle. And, uh, and I, you know, I was like, leaned over, like, why is your mom glaring at me for drinking out of this Coke can't, like bottle? She's like, she, you know, she, she would rather you pour that into a glass. <laughs> like, she thinks it's like, you know, you're a barbarian drinking Coca-Cola right out of the bottle, like pour it into a glass. I'm like, oh, okay. But those are a couple of things where like, you know, yeah. in my mind at that time, I'm like, okay, so is this, is it, you know, I don't know if this is class. Is this a cultural thing? Are Germans just weird? Am I weird? Like I, there's a lot going on, but like in, in hindsight, I'm like, no, those, those wouldn't be you know, th- those reactions from her mom wouldn't be, you know, unusual reactions either from like an upper middle class American woman, uh, as well, like a highly educated person uh, would also maybe sort of, you know, find that find that odd behavior, sort of odd, odd uh, table manners. Yeah, um, I will say my kids, um, their maternal grandmother was raised, uh, basically, like upper middle class California wasp. And there are certain habits uh, and tendencies that she inculcated into, you know, her daughter. And they're definitely go. I mean, my kid's instinct is your instinct, actually. <laughs> but then they get like, you know, they get yelled at or, you know, they get their hands slapped and they just, they have to like be boys, especially. I'm not going to lie. Uh, you know, you can imagine like an eight year old boy, like how uh, he's hungry wants to like go like let's do this you know it's like no you got to sit down and be civilized and all this stuff and that's just like conditioning over the years you know i didn't really have that too much um you know because like i could just like i was free range my my parents were like busy and they didn't let let me um you know do whatever or they they would let me do whatever i wanted to I, i but i i was not um i was not like i was not like you i have to say one of the most annoying things in your memoir 
is having to like read about your teacher who knows you're smart and you're um you're like Bart Simpson and you're basically like, hey, I just wanna I just wanna pass the class, man. I just wanna get a C minus. Yeah, you know, and I'm just like, here, yeah, yeah and like I know your teacher is like wanting to strangle you because like teachers like you could get an A and you're like, why would I? You know, uh, you are like so annoying and such an underachiever, you know, but it's because, uh, you know, among your among your among your friends, you're you're a giant. You're a man among giants, you know, a man, you know, a giant among men, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, in terms of like, you know, whatever, um, like raw mental ability, probably true. I mean, there was, you know, so so I was, I actually did pretty well in middle school. You know, I sort of document the, the upswings and downswings of my family life. In middle school, I was actually doing really well. And then on the, um, you know, based on the the scores and the the grades that I got in middle school, I was placed, I was sort of tracked into these college preparatory courses in high school. So, you know, I'd go to like biology or chemistry and my friends would go to like whatever, like general science or nutrition, some like, you know, kind of, you know, lower level science course, or I'd go to like algebra or geometry and they would go to what was called high school math. Um and I remember being really irritated at this because, you know, I, I had these friends and we were all in the same classes together in middle school. And now we're being tracked into different classes and I just wanted to hang out with them. And, you know, I was just sort of doing enough to pass these classes and I just wanted to hang out with my friends. And, you know, it, there was a period at one point where, you know, I literally I was placed into chemistry and that was actually a class where I learned like I couldn't just sort of BS my way through it and just sort of you know, copy and, and finagle my way through or whatever. Like I actually had to put in real effort. I'm like, Oh, I actually have to try in this class. This is horrible. And I ended up having to like forge my mom's signature and, and basically like got my school high school advisor or counselor to get me out of chemistry and into nutrition science because I didn't want to take a hard class. Um, and you know, one of the points, you know, I think that this sort of illuminates like, you know, there's there's this there's this widely held belief that, oh, you know, the reason why kids don't do well is because their teachers don't recognize their potential or sort of treat them poorly, or, you know, they're not getting enough support in the school system. And, you know, I was getting support, like everywhere I turned, like, teachers are really good at finding smart kids, especially smart kids from poor backgrounds. You know, they're looking for like, think about the type of person who becomes a teacher, right? Like they're public servants, they want to do good, like they love kids for the most part. You know, I think like people have this image in mind of what a teacher is, is like, you know, some cranky, you know, whatever, like, like, um, you know, grumpy old person or something. But most of my teachers were like, kind of switched on, and, and really sort of attentive. And it was just my home life was such a mess. And I was just an angry kid. I was sort of a troublemaking kid. I had, you know, kind of mischievous inclinations. And, you know, I just didn't see the the use. I didn't, you know, I kind of knew that I wasn't on a, on a college trajectory. My friends definitely weren't. And, you know, when you're a sort of impulsive teenage boy and you don't have much oversight at home and you have a bunch of other impulsive friends around you, like, why would you do well in school? It didn't seem... Um, you know, it just seemed pointless to me to do well. And, uh, and so, yeah, like that was, uh, you know, it's not just about the schools. It's not just about the teachers, right? Like there's a family component. There are other things involved besides just, you know, the way that the teacher treats the students. And, and in fact, like the teachers did have a positive effect on me. One teacher in particular, one of them who did kind of gently suggest, um, the military, you know, he didn't say you should join, but he's like, you know, this may be a good option for you. He noticed that I was kind of a smart and curious kid. And he just knew that he could tell that I needed like a bit of discipline and a little bit of structure in my life. And he was like, you know, I was in the military, did a lot of good for me. It might be a good option for you. And so that did stick with me because I could tell like I always appreciated it. Like it wasn't like I, you know, I didn't resent my teachers or something for holding me to high standards. I I kind of, you know, I guess I was flattered in some way that they noticed that I was smart. 
Um, but I didn't want to like fully acknowledge it. I didn't like the idea of thinking of myself as smart. Um, you know, I just didn't want to raise my standards for myself. I felt, I don't know, some degree of guilt or, uh, some degree of, I don't know. I just felt, uh, this ambivalence about if I'm a smart person and I'm not going to college, that seems like a waste. So therefore I'm not smart. Something like that was going on in the back of my mind. Uh, and I just was having a lot more fun with my friends and I didn't go, you know, it's funny. Like I talked a little bit about this with, uh, with a friend recently, one of, one of my sort of newer friends. And he was like, you know, did, like, where did you go to school? It sounds like you went to like some, like, you know, like, like school in the inner city. Like, so it was like, did you go to like a black school? Like what kind of place? I was like, no, it wasn't like that. It wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't like that to that extent, but it was more just like, you know, if you were caught like doing homework because you enjoyed it, or if you were caught like reading books or whatever, like, you might, I don't know, you might get called like a fag or something like that. It wasn't like, you know, you wouldn't, it, it wasn't like you'd get like straight up bullied or anything, but people would kind of mock it or make fun of it, at least the kind of guys that I hung out with. And so, you know, I did kind of keep it to myself and, you know, I'd read books and stuff, but I wasn't like advertise it or talk about things I was reading. And so there wasn't a lot of like reinforcement from my family or my peer group. Uh, there was from the teachers, but that, that just wasn't enough. Yeah. Like I'll give you, I'll give you a contrasting, um, so what I and again, I think a lot of the listeners will know this general story. Like I've written a piece about it, kind of personal, kind of weird for me, but whatever. Um, when I came to the United States, I was like not in kindergarten. Like, like so, I've never been to school in any other country. Show up in kindergarten, I didn't know English super well. I knew some, but like I didn't know it super well. They tested me, didn't test very well. Uh, by the end of the year, they tested me, and I tested like at the top. Um, mm. Uh, okay. So that's that. Um, and then, um, what ended up happening though was in third, was it third grade? Yeah. Beginning of third grade. And I, I was pretty good student, pretty diligent. Um, you know, and my, my dad was really busy and my mom, if you guys watch the namesake, my mom's a lot like that. Um, like there were some of the, like, for example, she didn't know like the sweater that you had to have multiple layers. There was a lot of things that were in the namesake that legit, like, did happen to me because we were in upstate New York. It was cold and my parents didn't know. Well, my mom in particular didn't know how to dress kids in the cold, whatever. Okay. So I was kind of free range and, um, you know, I would like walk like miles to the library when I was like eight, but in third grade, my teacher was basically like, you know, you're too smart to be in the school. We don't have an academic track. Um, there's this other school that has an academic track. I'm going to make you go to that school. And I was like, okay. And, um, and so then, like, she called my dad. He was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And, you know, we live near here and all this stuff. And she just kept calling him over and over and over. So he got, like, so annoyed that he came in because he was in the lab, like, trying to finish stuff up. And she was like, you know, your, your, your son's smart. My dad's like, okay, I mean, I have stuff to do. Like, what do you want me to do about it? And because, you know, he gets, he gets good grades, right? And so she's like, you need to go to the superintendent and request a transfer. And so he's like, okay, how do I do that? And she's like, this is what you say. This is what you do. She laid it out. What does the superintendent? The superintendent was like, okay, we'll do it. Like, because he was getting harassed by the teacher too. Um, and so I transferred and, you know, went into academically talented track, et cetera, et cetera. My only point is that was all teacher driven. My parents were very passive, but they did execute once the teacher, my dad did execute once the teacher like laid, laid the path. And again, I was relatively passive. So you know, like an in-between case, my parents weren't like super proactive, but um, I wasn't, you know, I took advantage of the push. So, I mean, I think there's like different, 
tracks of, of how that sort sort of thing can go. I mean, um, in terms of you, I think your big thing, and I, I do want to mention is like there was like an incident of, of violence uh, that I think was your turning point, right? Do you want to talk about that? Oh, we're talking about uh, with Shelley and the that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Go ahead. No, I'm talking about yeah. that. You were like driving and there was like a confrontation of road rage. Oh, that one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There were, yeah, there were a few incidents of um, violence. I mean, there was, I mean, that was, that was a, that was a crazy day. I mean, that was, um, so, I mean, I had, I had a close friend in the book. I call him Tyler. Um, you know, he became one of my, my closest friends in high school. I haven't talked to him in a couple of years, but, um, we used to be really, really close friends. He ended up going to going to prison a couple of times, actually. But at this point, we were, mm, were we? I guess we were 17, final year of high school. Um, you know, he and I were spending some time together after school. He he had just learned. He was my friend who was raised by his grandmother. His dad was in prison. His mom was kind of, you know, I don't I think she might have been in treatment and rehab or something, but she was having severe problems with drugs and I think mental illness, too. Um so he was raised by his grandma, but his grandma was very ill for most of our senior year. Um, or, yeah. And so she died uh, just sort of randomly. One day I came over. He told me to, t- you know, texted me. He was like, hey, you want to come hang out? You know, I'm like, all right, come over. And he's like, you know, he's crying. He's, his eyes are bloodshot. He's just in a, you know, just like in a really bad emotional state. And you could tell he's been drinking. And he's like, you know, hey, my grandma died. And, you know, we're talking about it. And uh, he lived out in... Um, you know, we called it like the bend in, in Red Bluff, uh, this kind of out in, out in the middle of nowhere, essentially, kind of like, you know, wherever, like right off the Sacramento River. And, um, you know, he had like, I don't think it was his property, but it was just like a wide sort of grassy area, trees and sort of dried out grass and dirt everywhere. And we were right outside his house and this pack of dogs kind of comes by and some of us, you know, some of the dogs scatter. We kind of get up and, uh, you know, just uh, tell the dogs to, to go away. One of them sticks around and, um, you know, sort of long story short, my friend Tyler kicks this dog off this cliff. Um, he was sort of, the dog was sort of sniffing around the edge of this cliff, sort of by the river. My friend kicks the dog off probably ended up killing it. I couldn't actually see because when I looked down, there were like thickets of branches and trees and leaves and everything. But I knew it was probably like a 30 foot drop. So there is almost no way that dog survived. Um, And, uh, you know, he and I had been drinking and, you know, arguing over this. And um, I ended up getting in my car and just driving off. And um, as I'm driving, this is on Highway 36, um, I'm seeing this car behind me uh, sort of flashes lights and honk at me. And, you know, I'm pretty, pretty drunk by this point. I don't know how long Tyler and I probably been hanging out for three or four hours, drinking Captain Rum, drinking or Cap- Captain Morgan and rum and this, you know, Coke and just sort of whatever we had available. And, um, so I pull over this car behind me and I had had an altercation with this guy once before he had seen me like drive through a stoplight and, you know, I, I was just kind of, you know, half the time I was driving and I wasn't working around the clock. Like I had probably been drinking or I was high. I was smoking weed. I was whatever in an altered state of consciousness. Wait, wait, where were you? Where, where, where are you working? At this point, I was working. Uh, I don't know if I should. It doesn't matter. I mean, I was working at this place, uh, this, this, this sort of grocery store uh, in town. It was a supermarket. Um, and uh, before that, I, I was working at an Italian restaurant as a dishwasher. Uh, at this point. So I'd had two different jobs uh, while I was in high school. 
And so, so yeah, this guy, you know, he, 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 uh, rolls down his window. I roll my down my window and he's like, you know, like I've seen you around town, like just driving like a maniac before. What are you doing? And, um, you know, I, I basically just tell him to F off, like, you know, what's your issue? Like, what's your problem? Who cares? Like, you know, why did, why does this matter to you? That kind of thing. Um, we end up getting out of the car. We're sort of, you know, pushing each other around. We end up fighting like right on the side of the road. Like cars are just sort of driving past us too. Like, you know, we had, and, uh, and, uh, yeah, he's, um, kind of a plump guy. He's a little bit older. I get up before him. We were sort of rolling around on the ground. I get up, I kick him in the face a few times. I was just sort of a little bit more wiry and had a bit more energy than him. Um, and so, you know, I ended up, you know, just kicking him and more or less winning this, this altercation. And, um, he ends up driving away and I, I get worried because he, he, he noticed that I had my like work clothes in my car and he was sort of threatening to call my manager. And he was like, I know where that place is. Like, I know the owner of that place. Like, I'm going to get you fired. And I'm like, you know, pretending I don't care, but I, I actually needed that job because I was paying rent. I was living with my friend and his dad and I was basically on my own at that point. Um, and so, you know, there were a few other incidents around this point, like my final year of high school, it was kind of, it was like, and it's, it's funny, like at the time I thought it was like the funnest year ever because I could drive. I was living with my friend and his dad. We had like complete freedom. Uh, but in hindsight, it was like probably the worst year too, just in terms of like how many close calls there were and how many sort of bad situations I'd put myself in. And, um, that was like one sort of clarifying moment where I was like, you know, this is bad. Like my, you know, my friend is clearly unwell and, um, he and I like had just had a fight and then I just like literally had a fight with this guy and I'm like, I don't know where I'm going to go next. Like, am I going to get fired from this job? What's like, what's my life going to be like after high school? I just had all these questions swirling on around in the back of my mind. Uh, and that was like one moment where, you know, I started to take the possibility of sort of enlisting and doing something else with my life seriously. Um, but yeah, that was like, you know, that was like one of the more, uh, I don't know, uh, egregious or, or, or foolhardy things that I did was just, um, you know, drinking and driving in general is pretty stupid, but then just like openly challenging a guy to, to a fight, like basically off the highway. Um, yeah, a lot of things could have gone wrong that day. And it was it, like, a lot of it was just, just sort of luck that I didn't, that it didn't. Yeah. And when I'm saying Yale or jail, like that's the sort of thing where it's like, you know, I mean, you, you, I mean, the issue with like say fighting, a lot of people do fight, you know, and I've gotten into fights too. And, the problem is, like, when someone gets seriously hurt, you're screwed in terms of you just committed, like, serious assault, you know? Yeah. Uh, you can go to jail. There are people that have died because they got punched, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, you would have had a – there are universes where, you know, there, yeah. there are parallel universes where you are living a different life, man, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, that's, that's – true. Yeah. That's true. I mean, like, it's funny because, like, I, get, I did get in a lot, of, a lot of fights in school, and – um yeah, it was just, uh, it's just like kind of, kind of lucky because I knew kids who got punched and like they would like, you know, like they, they would have to like spend months in the hospital or like spend, you know, weeks in, in sort of serious recovery situations or whatever. And it was just like, you know, I, whatever, like I broke one of my, my like fingers and like, you know, black eyes and just sort of like minor, minor injuries. But yeah, I've had friends who've had like far worse sort of outcomes just from like sort of basic sort of fist fighting things that you don't think actually would, um, would come out with with serious injuries but it does it does happen yeah it does um you know we've been talking for a while about a lot of different things obviously uh, people should read the book uh, as 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 i said as you uh, recounted others have said you know it's a page turner there's a lot of a lot of events uh you've lived an interesting life um 
that's not necessarily positive for you. Um, it's made you who you are. But uh, some, you know, because some of the things are, you know, stuff about the foster care system, some what memories of your mom, you know, some of those, you know, didn't talk about your family life, but you know, there's stuff going on in your family life. A lot of, uh, I think the term that people use today now is precarity. Um, you get a, you get a sense of precarity of your life as a teenager, of your life with, uh, you know, your mom, you, you know, your adoptive mom, your mom, and you know, your sister being, you know, kind of in the middle of this, a little younger, and then I'm not going to get into it, but you know, kind of a weird relationship with your adoptive dad after the divorce and all of this stuff. So, um, you know, obviously you're doing fine now. Uh, you know, you're on your feet. Uh, you're living like you're living the dream. You live in the Shire. You know, but um, you know, you came out of <laughs> you came out. You were not in the Shire, man. Like, I mean, it was like it was tough. The the tough uh, back streets of Red Bluff or the back roads of Red Bluff. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, as we close out, um, I know you have uh, another podcast to go to. Uh, you know, um, what would you what would you like tell the listener about what the uh, message or moral of your book is like if you have one at all if it's like more than descriptive uh yeah i mean i i would just you know i i guess i touched on it very briefly earlier is that you know the main you know the main focus for so many people who are interested in questions of class and social mobility is just getting getting more kids from whatever dispossessed marginalized backgrounds into college making sure they earn enough money sort of getting them into uh, you know, good jobs, high paying jobs. Uh, and I think, you know, again, that's all important, but I think, uh, you know, in addition, we could also focus on ensuring kids kind of don't really go through such harrowing and, uh, dysfunctional situations in the first place. You know, I mean, so, so my life, of course, you know, I, I mentioned this somewhere in the book that, you know, I scored, you know, I took this childhood instability score. It's a kind of commonly used measure in, 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 uh, developmental psychology. And I scored in the top 1% most unstable childhoods in the U S. So I get that my story is like extremely unusual. It's kind of an outlier. Um, and I guess, you know, that's, that's one reason why I was approached to, 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 to write this book in the first place. But again, like I had five close friends who just kind of had garden variety, broken homes, similarly unpromising situations, also bad students and so on. And I make this point in the book that like, you know, I, so out of the five friends, two of them went to jail, you know, one of them did end up enlisting in the military. He's doing okay now. You know, one of my friends is, uh, uh, what he he just he got fired from walmart i think he's training to be a plumber now but like these are you know whatever the other friend i think works at a batting cage and these are kind of like the typical kind of conventional outcomes you could expect for you know whatever boys who are in this kind of environment and i think um you know so the point i make in the book you know we've been talking a little bit about genetics and whatever is that it's it's probably a near certainty that none of my five friends were going to go to a place like yale um, but I don't think that the two friends that went to prison had to go. I don't think that was written in stone. I think that we may not be able to, you know, whatever, like alter the environment such that we raise the ceiling for these kinds of kids. But I think we could raise the floor. I think we can sort of ensure that they don't um, sort of live extremely dire and, um, you know, just self-defeating uh, circumstances and, and, you know, live a sort of more happy, more sort of stable, pleasant life, even if they don't go on to college. You know, I, a lot of people who sort of set education policy and public policy in general, these are kind of nerds who do really well in school and assume that if everyone else just did well in school, everything would be, you know, happy and great. And a lot of people aren't sort of inclined for academic achievement. And I think that if we could just make sure that those people had, you know, decent, happy, healthy childhoods, 
that would sort of help to mitigate uh, a lot of the the risk taking behaviors and dangerous thrill seeking and all the impulsivity that could come later um, that can be contained a little bit more. I don't think it's, you know, I, I just don't think that like those things necessarily have to be the case that, you know, you can, you can find ways to improve education policy. You can find kids like me, get them, you know, whatever, get them into college. A lot of people aren't um, academically oriented. Um, but instead of trying to get them to be that way, just, you know, make sure that they have stable upbringings and, I don't think that they'll end up in in jail. Uh, they may not end up in Yale, but maybe somewhere in between. You know, just sort of focus more on that in between area. Um, and I think a good way to do that would be, you know, trying to help to restore families and sort of pay more attention to to upbringing rather than what happens after the age of eighteen. All right, man. Well, uh, it's been great talking to you. Um, the memoir is, uh, you know, out there. Um, uh, Troubled memoir of foster care, family, and social class. You can find it, you know, all over the internet. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, um, it was great um, talking to you and catching up. And you know, next time we're going to be talking about other things um, uh, besides your uh, troubled upbringing. You know, mm-hmm. we talk about yeah. psychology, luxury beliefs. So you know, you got a Substack out there, um, and uh, that's mostly what you're doing. But you write in other places and. Um, you know, your idea of luxury beliefs has really gotten out of that. Luxury beliefs are a big enough deal that people don't cite you. When, yeah, yeah, when, yeah. You're, when, when, you're, when your terminology or when your vocabulary is used by people without acknowledgement or understanding, um, uh, like, uh, you know, for me, it was that one time when uh, Elon retweeted a, a Sulla meme and people are like, why did Sulla become a thing? And like, you know, all my oh, friends right. are like, you were the one who started it like five years ago. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like I, br- I brought, I brought him back, you know, from obscurity. Yeah. So now, but people, I, I wasn't acknowledged like, cause it was like, it's just out there. It's one of the things, you know? And so it's in the zeitgeist. It's in the, it's in the discourse. It's in the discourse on X. So um, yeah, it was, it was great chatting with you. Um, everyone should check out your Substack, and you do podcasts with uh, Richard, Hanania, I'll use the uh, oh, yeah. the correct surname this time. Yeah, I mean, if, you, if if they're listening this late, like, I mean, we're good. Like that, you know, they complete us. It'll be all good. Um, yeah, but yeah. anyway, yeah, kind of on and off. Yeah, yeah, Richard. And I, yeah, it's sort of you know, it's uh, it's infrequent, but we do. You know, we we always have something something cooking, and so yeah, Richard and I record these podcasts together too. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was great talking to you, and um, I'll see you online, man. Thanks, Razib. Whole genome sequencing is used for adults and children every day to assess risk for thousands of diseases. Orchid, a genetics company led by scientists from Stanford, is able to do this for IVF embryos. Now, instead of waiting for a diagnosis, parents can assess if their embryos have genetic variants known to cause severe conditions before their child's even born. No other tests can detect these issues so thoroughly or so early. So check them out at orchidhealth.com. This podcast for kids.